Welcome to a special episode of Hero with a Thousand Potions, a very different episode from any episode we've published so far. This is a video game travelogue, which is not something I've ever heard of before, but that's what I'm doing here. Before we get underway, let me explain the idea. Typically, and well outside of the world of video games, a travelogue is a record of a traveler's personal experiences as they embark on an adventure. Most of the time, the content is written in the first-person perspective of the traveler themselves. It is an essay, a platform for a single point of view in service of a personal narrative that sheds light on someone's thoughts, their joys, successes, frustrations, failures, and everything in between as a means to relate their journey as they saw to others. In February 2022, when Nintendo announced EarthBound and its predecessor EarthBound Beginnings as joining the Nintendo Switch's library of games on their virtual retro consoles, I knew I wanted to do something about this series to celebrate it on this podcast. But what? EarthBound, the sequel to EarthBound Beginnings, has always been near and dear to me, but I've never played the original. Then this harebrained idea came to me. I could play EarthBound Beginnings and share my experience. My experience. All of my cleverness and all of my foolishness. Everything I experienced and nothing I didn't. A very warts and all approach in podcast form. This is not a review of Earthbound Beginnings. We will not be going over the game's development history. I am not going to compare and contrast Earthbound Beginnings' gameplay with other entries of the Mother series. I'm not here to rate the game some number out of 5 or 10. And I'm not even going to make a recommendation that you should play it. And as for as much as I appreciate him, I am not going to discuss series creator Shigesato Itoi's unusual and extraordinary life accomplishments. And I'm not going to talk about how this game and its sequels became the cult classics they are today. There are plenty of videos and articles on the internet that will share that with you. We don't need more of that. But what I'm not seeing on the internet is Earthbound Beginnings retold as a story from the perspective of a player experiencing it as it unfolds before them. From the game's very beginning to its very end, each moment richly detailed with illustrative descriptions that paints a picture in the listener's mind of what it was like to play Earthbound Beginnings on the Nintendo Switch as I did, without needing to have played it themselves. That's what I want to do here, plus include my reactions, thoughts, theories, and similar, and some interesting and humorous surprises along the way. As I've been working on this, I wondered if this could be a new form of retro entertainment, becoming a subgenre of gaming videos that would sit quite comfortable at the lunch table with retro reviews, let's plays, fan theory analyses, iceberg explained videos, and things like that. This is Video Gaming Reimagined, elevating the emotional connections a game forges with its player to the level of storytelling, folklore, oral history. This is a love letter to a quirky, subversive, genre-twisting role-playing game first released more than 33 years ago, and a time capsule preserving the memory of a dusty corner in a rapidly aging era of the interactive arts. This is No Crying Until the End, an Earthbound Beginnings travelogue. When the game loads, we're treated to a black screen. Sensitive but profound music plays. The words produced by Nintendo, presented by Shigesato Itoi, appear, and then the title screen. 
The words Earth and Bound appear in red letters against a black background, with the O in Bound replaced with a spinning planet Earth, a blue globe brushed by white clouds. I select an empty game file and press Start Up. The sprite of a young boy appears. I'm prompted with the question, what is this boy's name? I enter Ninten, N-I-N-T-E-N. The sprite of a young girl in a pink outfit appears. Same question. I know her name is Anna, A-N-A. -A. I input it. Another young boy with glasses and a red outfit appears. Same question. I know his name is Lloyd, L-O-I-D. I rename him Lloyd, spelled L-L-O-Y-D because I'm not going to read that name with that spelling all game long. I'm just not. A tough-looking man with exposed buff arms, a big nose, and black shades appears. His name is Teddy. T-E-D-D-Y. I input it. I'm asked, what is your favorite food? The canon answer is Prime Rib. Good answer. So I pick Prime Rib, but I can't find a space character, so I hyphenate the cuisine's name. The next screen reviews all of my selections. Ninten, Anna, Lloyd, Teddy, and Prime-Rib. Is this okay? I select yes. The next screen progressively fills with text. It says, In the early 1900s, a dark shadow covered a small country town in rural America. At that time, a young married couple vanished mysteriously from their home. The man's name was George, and the woman's name is Maria. Two years later, as suddenly as he left, George returned. He never told anyone where he had been or what he had done, but he began an odd study all by himself. As for his wife, she never returned. Eighty years has passed since then. Thanks, Prologue Kid. Next screen, we take control of Ninten, an unassuming, all-American, apple-cheeked, baseball-cap-wearing 12-year-old. He's sitting on a white recliner in his bedroom. A blue lamp sits on the floor adjacent to it. The walls and ceiling are the same dull cream color. A bed sits off to the side and a dresser drawer is across the room. I attempt to leave the room and the lamp comes to life. It rotates around the room and I battle it. It has a toothy grin, although I might be projecting periodilia onto its 8-bit rendering. I attack it with my bare hands. After a few punches, it goes back to normal. What is this? I have a PSI power called telepathy, but nothing happens when I use it. PSI, well that, that's short for psychic powers, by the way. Now the house is shaking. I run out of my room to the hallway and enter the next bedroom. It's my sister's room. Her lamp has also come to life. I bash it until it doesn't move anymore. The girl, my sister, says, Oh, my brother, the house is falling apart. Boo-hoo. In the following room, I found another girl. Do I have two sisters? Her doll has come to life and is threatening her. I attack it, and it looks creepy as fuck. After beating it into submission, the doll is now resting on the dresser drawer. When I check it, I discover it has a music box, which plays five notes of a pretty melody. The screen flashes with psychedelic colors. Am I having a seizure? Then a prompt says, Ninten remembered the tune. In my status menu, a single music note appears in a box I'm just going to call our melody meter. It looks like we have seven more melodies to discover. I go to the lower level of the house. Mom and my sisters are here. My sisters' names are Minnie and Mimi. And Mini functions a lot like Escargo Express from Earthbound. I give them items and she stores them because we have limited inventory space in this game. Both of my sisters give me orange juice, which will restore my health. Mother is blocking the door and the phone rings. It's dad. He calls this phenomenon a poltergeist, but I have to ask, how did he know about this if he's not here? And where is he? Dad recommends I find something in the basement. 
The door is locked and Dad has forgotten where the key is. Then he says I'm about to go on an adventure and offers to save my game. I go outside. Our house is a small two-story wooden house painted white with a gray roof and a chimney, although I don't remember seeing a chimney inside. Six trees encircle the house and the property is lined by a simple wooden fence. We have a dog and I talk to him. So I guess I can talk to animals. He invites me to check him. And when I check him, I find a key on his collar. Is this the key to the basement? I return to the interior of the house and yes, it is the key to the basement. I go in. There are three present boxes in the basement. I open them because that's what kids do. We open presents. One has a special item in it, GGF's diary. That must mean great-grandfather. The other presents have a loaf of bread and a plastic bat. I equip the plastic bat and my offense in battle increases by a trace amount. The diary was hard to read, but I read a page of it and it goes like this. Password. The one who lost the tail. The forgotten one. The ship that sails. Dot dot dot. And you know what, that's all I read of my great-grandfather's diary. Surely these words will be relevant on my journey. Oh, and there are random battles down here. A rat draws near. I bash it. It seems my ability to speak with animals has come at a cost because this rat utters dirty words that lower my attack. When it's defeated, the rat becomes quiet. One rat after level three, I develop a new PSI power through battle. It's called Life Up Alpha, a health restoration ability. Awesome. I stick around this basement to gain more experience on these rats. It's taking a while to find the rats now. What happened to these random battles? What is this, an Undertale genocide run? While I'm pathing around the basement looking for battles, I realize I can move diagonally in addition to up, down, left, and right. I am pleased. This makes using the Switch's joystick much more appealing. I do my best Charlie Kelly impression and beat rats with my rat stick until I hit level 4. Oh, another PSI power? But my PSI menu only has two powers that I had before. Hmm. I leave the house and explore the area beyond our simple wooden fence. I encounter a stray dog. He's big brown, bears a mouth of sharp white teeth, and wears a collar with broken metal chain links hanging off it. I bash it until it goes back to normal. I walk through a dirt path along a forest and alongside a stream until I discover a woman in a pink dress and pink hair is panicking outside of a baby poop green colored house. Her child, named Pippi, is missing. She says if I'm going to podunk, please tell the mayor. I walk past a sign that directs me to the, quote, Canary Village Wildlife Refuge. Then I get attacked by a hippie. <laughs> the hippie is meditating. The hippie regains its senses. The hippie also has an attack up power and flies into a rage, but I beat him. I wander towards the Canary Village Wildlife Refuge. This might not be the way to podunk, but who cares? I run into two hyenas. They have much more health than the stray dog and the hippie. Occasionally, the hyena just grins and bears it, wasting its turn. When I bash it enough, the hyenas go quiet. What? Now a gorilla attacks? Okay, his posture is very weird, like he turns his head to look at me, but he's standing in profile. And he stole my orange juice. Ugh, I bash him. He smashes me for 20 damage. Now, you should know that a smash is a critical hit that ignores the target's defenses. 20 damage is half my health. Ugh, what am I thinking? This plastic bat and I are no match for a gorilla. So I flee the battle. Eventually, I'm getting a sense that these enemies are getting too strong for me and I really don't have the resources to sustain my health much longer. So I turn around and look for the path to Podunk. On my way back, I encounter a crow. He or she is wearing red high heel shoes and I bash it and it also goes back to normal. Now a farmer attacks. Okay, he's an elder gentleman with a pitchfork wearing blue overalls. His name is Wally and he has an attack up skill, kind of like the hippie does. I beat him with my plastic bat until he runs back to his homestead. At last I have reached the city limits of Podunk. 
It's oriented roughly south of Nintendo's house and southeast of the forest path which led me to Canary Village. Here the roads are paved and there are an array of buildings, residential houses, and no fewer than 10 flower gardens. I speak with the residents. A woman asks me if we've been visited by a poltergeist and that one has destroyed her house. A mouse tells me I can only enter houses with doors that have a rounded top. I encounter another crow, and this one steals my other OJ. I am now totally out of OJ. I enter a hotel. Its door is square, not rounded, but it did have a hotel sign hanging above it. A child in the hotel says, You are that snot-nosed Nintendo I sat next to in kindergarten. Uh, look kid, nobody uses snot-nosed to describe someone's peer. That's an intergenerational term. I leave the hotel and check out the fast food restaurant. It sells OJ for five bucks, french fries for 15, and hamburgers for 25. I buy nothing because my money is precious to me and I don't want any more food stolen from me. I enter City Hall by a square-topped door. The secretary says that they will share a secret with me later. The mayor tasks me to help him find a child that has wandered into the cemetery. He's up for re-election and it would really help him out. The mayor says he will be a hero when he recovers the child. And I wonder if this lost child is Pippi that I heard about earlier. I visit the department store. It has an ATM and a payphone. I have a cash card in my inventory and I use it at the ATM. My father has been depositing money into my account every time I complete a battle. Each foe I encounter has a specific monetary value, like a bounty. Rats are worth $2, crows 4 stray dogs 10 hippies and wallies are each worth 35 The drugstore sells antidotes, asthma sprays, life-up creams, insecticide, most of which are too pricey for me. Ooh, ooh, but there's a wooden bat worth $500. I grind for that money immediately because doing more damage in battles means I can end battles sooner, which exposes me to fewer attacks that might give me a game over. <laughs> what was that sound? Did anyone hear laughing just now? Several hippies, wallies, crows, and dogs later, I earned the wooden bat. It doubles my base attack. At the southern end of town, a townie accuses me of being a zombie. Then he attacks me. It's a pseudo-zombie. In battle, he appears quite different than his overworld sprite does. Now he takes the form of a skinny, creepy adult male wearing only orange shorts and looking at me with menacing orange eyes and bearing two orange teeth. His hands are outstretched towards me, like a zombie. I bash him until he stops moving. I backtrack and explore east of town. Now a centipede attacks. Its yellow body stands erect, displaying green shoes, green mittens, and two cartoonish googly eyes. I bash it, and it goes down easy. Farther east, two cops block passage over a bridge that, according to the officers, can take me to the town of Marysville, but one of the officers hints that there is another way to Marysville northeast of the zoo, which is north of Podunk. I return south on my way to the graveyard. I enter a house near two bridges. A healer lives here who says he can restore my psychic points, or PP, which is the resource I use to cast life up, alpha, and presumably other psychic abilities. The healer can also cure petrification at a cost. He also has a phone I can use, so I call dad. As I walk south, the trees are losing their leaves. Instead of lush green boughs, all trees in this area are brown and leafless. I encounter more zombies. I bash them. I encounter four bats. Wait, no, 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 no. I encounter four Mr. Bats. Purple bats with big white eyes and a large grin. They evade some of my attacks and sometimes they waste their turn, quote, thinking about the circumstances. Eventually, I approach a brick wall with more dead trees and gravestones on the other side. We're here, at the graveyard. I must find the entrance. Okay, found it. When I enter, the music changes to eerie tones. I find a chapel and enter it. There's a person in a blue outfit who has trapped himself inside for fear of the zombie outbreak. Maybe he's a pastor? And I leave him here. My mission isn't to save the life of a pastor. It's to save the life of a little girl. Good luck, Reverend. A gang zombie draws near. 
He is a hog-nosed zombie with red eyes, a flesh-colored button-down shirt with a matching green suit coat, slacks, tie, and a bowler hat with orange leather shoes. He hits harder than the other zombies, but I take him down in two hits. A bubblegum pink condom with big expressive eyes, a wide grin, and open arms calling itself a ghost draws near. I strike it once, and it runs away. I discover that the foundation to one of the larger broken headstones in this graveyard is actually an entrance to an underground tunnel. I cast life up and go down. A staircase bathed in yellow light directs me to a door. Past that room, there are four caskets shaking in place. I pry the lid off one of the caskets and fight a pseudo-zombie. I pry the lid off the other three. Two have zombies in them, but the fourth has the missing girl, Pippi. She wears a pink outfit and has two red ponytails turned upwards defying gravity. Pippi says, what a brave boy I am to have found her. I can say yes or no to this. I say no to look cool. You're brave. I hope we can meet again sometime. <laughs> I say yes, teasing her. To show her gratitude, she gives me a shiny badge that will guard me. It's the Franklin badge. Let's go back to town. When we get into a fight, Pippi has stats. She fights with me in battles. She's only level one and with 32 health, no psychic points, and when she attacks, she does only a trace amount of damage. On our way back to Podunk, I show her how to kill zombies, bats, and whatever else gets in my way. Before long, I find another condom ghost, and we defeat it. When we get back to town, we go to the department store. I buy a sports drink, a $120 slingshot, which Pippi equips, Oh yeah, and when I get to the department store's pet counter, like a pet store, they offer me a canary. They want to sell it to me for $85. I decline. Then they say they'll give it to me for free. And I say yes. I receive a canary. Now, I could take Pippi back to her mom, or to the mayor, but now that I have this canary, I recall nearly getting my ass handed to me by a gorilla near a place called Canary Village. I decide to head in that direction and bring Pippi along because, well, I fear enemies as level scaling in this game and I want to be able to dish as much damage in one turn as I can. Before we depart, we get a room at a hotel. We behave ourselves, I promise. The next morning I call dad and we make our way to Canary Village. As we leave town, I realize this game is a run button. When I push it, I move at double speed, but so too does every moving sprite on my screen. So fair enough. I take a wrong turn and pass Pippi's house. Her mother is still outside, freaking out and looking for her. Hopefully she doesn't see I found her missing daughter, which sounds horrible. I'm just not ready to bring her home and put this crisis to an end. Am I a bad guy for thinking that? All right, all right. Now that I'm on the right track, I find another brick wall which encloses more dead trees. Is this another graveyard? I can see me-sized chocobos walking around in this massive enclosure. This must be Canary Village. I find about 10 of these chocobos, but none of them want to talk to me. They just spit ellipses points. I find a row of several tall yellow gravestones. The center one is white. I check it and I get prompted with a question mark, but nothing else happens. There's a man here. He looks like the healer who was just outside the graveyard south of town. He says the canary in my possession looks like the baby of Singing Laura, one of the canaries in this village, and that I ought to return the baby to her. But where is Laura? I can see that there's one chocobo out of reach. She's behind the white gravestone. Oh, okay. After some trial and error, I can reach this chocobo by walking behind that question mark gravestone. When I give Laura the baby, she's overjoyed with emotion and begins singing. Part of a melody plays and the screen flickers with hallucinogenic bars of color. Am I having a seizure? Ninten remembers the tune. In our status bar, a second music note has been added to our melody meter. Looks like we have six to go. It's about this time that I realized Pippi was kind of unnecessary and that there are no battles here. I return to the mayor. He congratulates me on my ability to do my civic duty. He claps. 
He says, now, pretty Pippi, don't forget to tell your mom that the mayor saved you. He gives me a hundred bucks for completing the mission. Now that he's moving around in his office, I can see the mayor's model better. He wears a purple shirt, black pants, and a purple wide-brimmed hat, sort of like Gunther from Stardew Valley. He asks me if I want to see what's up at the zoo. Pippi leaves my party. She asks me if I think her hair needs styling. Not wanting to part ways, I am sad to see her go, and losing my cool composure, I say no. And she says I didn't need to give an answer and calls me cutie. The mayor's assistant gives me a zoo key. When I talk to the assistant again, they give me another zoo key. They are a dime a dozen, they say. I walk north of Podunk with the zoo as my destination. Pippi's house is on the way, and I drop by. Her mother thanks me. Pippi has heard all about my wonderful adventures, although I haven't done shit since I last saw her. She says, I am so brave, aren't I? I say yes, because I am a conceited fuck. She calls me swell-headed. Final note before the zoo, I am unable to ask Pippi to return the $120 slingshot back to me. We made almost zero use out of it, and that was just not a very good investment. On my way to the zoo, I wonder how many hippies and wallies I've bashed by now. Liberals and conservatives alike. They're all worth 35 bucks to me. Another thing that crosses my mind as I'm walking to the zoo, besides that one woman in Podunk, nobody else has mentioned the poltergeist. Okay, I'm here now. A row of pink tulips marks my way to the entrance of the zoo. Suddenly, a little... A lil, L-I-L, <laughs> saucer draws near. It's a small gray disc with an upraised area in the center, tiny circular red windows, and a rim with white rivets. It has high speed and it can shield itself, but I destroy it in three hits. I approach a metal fence and a crocodile draws near. It's large and yellow. Sometimes it waits to turn, approaching me slowly. And two hits make it go quiet. I make a complete circle around the zoo's fencing. I pass a gate guarded by a monkey. I don't even talk to him. I keep going. On the north side, I see the land ends at verdant cliffs with white caps of waves crashing below. There are golfer holes pockmarking the ground, but I don't see any golfers here. As I'm leveling up, I'm learning new PSI abilities, but I don't see them in the battle's PSI menu. After doing some looking around, I discover that the ability list in the battle menu and the ability list in the overworld menu have different inclusions. By now, I've got hypnosis and defense up. And I've also got this thing called fourth D slip. I think that's short for fourth dimensional slip. And when you use it in battle, it's almost like a free escape. Um, despite all of these neat abilities like hypnosis and defense up, let's be real here. The path of least resistance to finishing these fights as fast as possible is simply bashing. So I don't really leverage much of these skills right now. Two alligators draw near. With only one third of my health, this causes me some unique alarm. Even after it life up on turn one, one gator crits me, the other gators hit connects, and I run out of health. I faint. Wait, hold on. Where... where am I? This is the Earthbound beginning game over counter. You have one game over. Come on, dude. Who are you? I'm the game over kid, and I count your game overs. You're the game over kid, and you count my game overs. Great. So... What killed you? I have to explain myself? Um, duh, this is the game over counter. You know what? Fine, whatever. Two alligators killed me. Dang, that's gotta hurt. But you can't be getting game over, then you cannot be letting children die, okay? I know that. You have to do better. I don't want to come back here again, because I swear, if I do... Okay, okay, I'll do better. Holy crap, what was that all about? Getting back to the game here, this is what really happens when your party dies or everyone has an incapacitating status effect like petrify or paralyze. I appear in a dark room under a spotlight. A voice calls out to me, Ninten, Ninten, you seem to be worn out from fighting. One more time? I say continue. And then I reappear at my last save in Podunk. I'm out of psychic points here and I've lost some of my money. 
I run home and ask my mom to make me a prime rib dinner. Mmm, delicious. Psychic points restored. When I return to the area around the zoo, a tiger draws near. He's big and skulking towards me and baring his fangs. I bash him until he goes quiet. Then an elephant draws near. Big, gray, tusked, and charging towards me. I'm afraid of this guy, and I cast defense up. When it charges me, it deals only a trace amount of damage. Man, this defense up skill must be really powerful. After a few hits, the elephant goes quiet. Then a fly-a appears, but there's no fly-b. It's small, silver-bodied, and all of its arms and legs have blue mittens or booties. It cries for help, and then, hmm, fly-b joins. But I bash them, and they go away. Uh-oh, I run into two crocs again. Rather than a first turn life up, I do a defense up. Easy. These guys are toast. The defense up ability gives a lot of physical defense. When I'm feeling ready, I speak with the monkey at the gate, who promptly steals my zoo key and runs off into the zoo with it. Precarious music plays. The rabbits are still in the rabbit enclosure, but other enclosures have broken areas of fencing. I find the panda enclosure. They're still there, and they are cute. I find the monkey enclosure, but there's no way inside to speak with the other monkeys. I have become so experienced by now that the next time I encounter two alligators, I finish one in one hit, dodge the second's attack, and finish the second one on my second turn. This is a far cry from the other alligator duos win on me earlier. I find the flamingo enclosure. Several are resting with one leg standing up near a pond. And north of that enclosure is a sign that says, One of a kind! See the amazing singing monkey! Given that the canary in Canary Village sang me an important song earlier, I feel like I should seek this monkey out. In the zoo's southeast corner, I find a tall yellow building. It's called City Zoo Superintendent's Office. I enter and flies attack. They call their buddies for assistance, but when I defeat one, they all flee. The music here is absolutely grating on the ears. What the hell is this? I keep looking around, and in one of the rooms I find a present. I am a child. I open presents. So I open it. There's a rope? Okay, I've got a rope. Uh, hold on, hold on. Why does every interior room in this game have the same ugly buttercream yellow on its walls and floors? I'm just, ugh, I'm getting tired of looking at it. Alright, there's a present in another room. An antidote. Seems like a smart thing to have in a zoo administration building. In this third room, third present. Bread. It's mine because I'm a kid and kids open presents. This building is also infested with rats. I get my Charlie Kelly on again. Just when I'm about to wonder how many more rats I'll run into, on the third floor of this building, I enter a room with a floating blue and white pill, like a capsule, and but it's as large as a piece of furniture. It's twitching in the center of the room. I life up and I check it. Suddenly, from inside the capsule appears an alien. It's a Starman Jr. and a fight breaks out. What I'm seeing though is that this Starman is a spacesuit of one shiny plasticine texture and he's got his hands on his hips in a power pose he's got a black slat visor military badge like accolades on its breast and its arms come to an end like a tentacle akin to a starfish he looks like he means business but when he casts a beam spell on me my franklin badge reflects the spell but does no damage to him in return in three hits he's gone the capsule blinks red and white and then escapes out of the building that awful, grinding sound has died down. The zoo, once more, became a safe place, and music that I can tolerate begins to play. I return to the singing monkey's pen. He sings with a passion. The screen ripples with psychedelic bars of red, pink, and white as a few notes play. Nintendo remembers the tune. Three out of eight melodies confirmed. As I'm leaving the zoo, I think I missed the penguin enclosure, but they're, they're here too. All right, I come back to Podunk and I speak with the mayor again. He says I have tiger droppings on my clothes. 
Just joking. Dude, I have tiger viscera on this baseball bat. You don't want me to show you it. So what now? The mayor's secretary says she's heard of a wonderful girl that will help me on my trip. She has no follow-up info, although I have several questions about this. The only logical place for me to go next is Marysville, but is the police blockade still there? I check. Yes, the blockade is still there. And they won't let me through, but they do remind me of the other path by the zoo. It's also blockaded, but perhaps by more lenient cops. And so I go there. Let me tell you, I am thrilled to do this much backtracking. I find those more possibly lenient cops. One of them says that the cave ahead has a strange rock in it and I should take a look. The other cop says the curfew is lifted, but travel was never restricted. So why are these cops here? The cop also deduces that I know telepathy, but how did he figure that out? You know what? I still don't know how this skill works. Every time I use it, nothing happens. Rocky cliffs rise up around me as I turn southeast and a cave entrance lies at the end of this valley I find myself in. I enter. The music in this cave is kind of creepy. A lonely path surrounded by black emptiness takes me to a tall, pink seashell, perhaps 15 feet tall. I check it. It says a voice is speaking to me in my mind. Okay, so let's try telepathy here. Oh my god, it works. I'm prompted with the following. Who has lost his tail? I refer to my great-grandfather's diary for the answer. The forgotten one of the ship that sails the cosmos, I say. Then I disappear. I reappear in... A magical paradise? Is this Atlantis or heaven? Magical aquatic music plays. The walkable areas here are scatters of pink and white clouds, or maybe they are just polished stones. Behind me is a tall, twisting shell of white, perhaps my waypoint back to the cave. There's a furry animal swimming playfully in the turquoise waters that course through the area. It says, I am a swimming cat. Then it hints that magic candy can improve my power. There's a gnome here. He's in a red shirt and a wizard cap. And he says, I look funny, but for some reason he likes me. There are several houses here built into enormous pink shells. I must be in a town of some kind. One of the denizens, also a gnome in a funny hat says, if I put a red weed into the fountain, it will become a magic herb. Someone else wants to put a broken earring in the fountain, and maybe it will become a magic earring. A third gnome wishes she could go into the castle to see Queen Mary. I keep exploring this town and meet some more of the locals. I meet the mysterious mimicker, who rehearses all the things Dad says when I call him, including saving my game. Hmm, how strange. Another gnome says he'll give me the big bag if I hand him my cash card. I hand him my cash card. Oh my god, what the fuck have I done? I return later, and he returns the cash card to me, then gives me the, quote, big bag. And every time I use the bag, I get a free magic herb out of it and eat it, restoring health. There's another gnome here that calls itself a mysterious goods keeper. He's like Mimi, or was it Minnie? One of the, the sisters that stores my items. The same items that I've saved with my sister are also here with the mysterious goods keeper as well. Boy, these wizards are obsessed with Queen Mary's Fountain. I really gotta find this thing. I learned that deep in the woods nearby, there is a guitar player who is a hermit. According to the gnomes, it seems that this land exists in another reality, like in a dream. They say that when you arrive here in the land of Magicant, they do not return. So I'm here in the land of Magicant. One has a bent spoon. I unbend it with my PSI powers, and he invites me to stay the night. There is a music store here. It's expecting an ocarina, but it's never arrived. A local doctor restores my status without asking my permission. And at the north end of town, there are three shell houses that each have a number seven over their doors. One is a shop that sells peace coins, protect coins, and magic coins, and I can afford none of them. Where's the ATM gnome? 
The second, number seven shell, sells brass rings, silver rings, and gold rings, and I can afford none of them. The third, number seven shell, is a shop that sells repel rings, H2O pendants, fire pendants, and earth pendants and I can't afford none of them. When I leave town, I get into a fight with a Woodoo. It is a Trent. It has two wooden legs, a long Pinocchio nose, grinning face, upraised arms, and the top of its head is flat like a stump. His attack did something strange, and now I am puzzled. He sows seeds around himself, and now there is a second Woodoo. Now there's a third. Great. I'm puzzled and Nintendo daydreams instead of attacks. There is nothing I can do here until I stop daydreaming. After a few turns, I come back to normal, get a crit on the first Woodoo, who was, quote, beaten. Eventually, I take down the other two as well. Elsewhere in Magicant, I find a monkey who confesses it does not sing, and he asks me if I have any questions. I say yes. He says questions are ridiculous. End of conversation. There's a cat that swims in the ground here. It wants me to guess what's in its hand. I use telepathy on it. Hmm, I'm getting good at this. I guess ribbon. That is correct, but it won't hand it to me because I am not a girl. Hmm, yikes, dude. Another gnome in town wanted me to guess what's for dinner. I tried telepathy on her, but nothing happens. West of town, there is a forest of palm trees, and I meet a man. It's the guitar player I've heard about earlier. He's wearing a blue bandana and a blue outfit with a guitar across his back. He says when I become really strong, I should see him again. I encounter a rabe eat it. R-A-E-B-Y-D-D-E-T. That's teddy bear spelled backwards. He's a large green teddy bear that wears Coke bottle glasses. I bash him and he stops moving. Now I encounter two magic snails. They have slimy yellow bodies and their shells have a red and white peppermint lozenge pattern on them. They hit hard and have high defense. The next time I encounter Rabe Yedit, he's invited a Sky Yedit, which is a blue variation of the Rabe Yedit, but has wings now. When I defeat the Rabe Yedit, the other one hits me for 180 damage. I die. Oh no, it's the Game Over Kid again. This is the Earthbound Beginning Game Over Counter, and you, my friend, got a Game Over again! What killed you this time? I don't want to say. Tell me. Please don't make me do this. This episode cannot keep going until you tell me, dude. Fine. A teddy bear. A teddy bear killed me. <laughs> teddy bear? Seriously? A little baby toy? It was a magical teddy bear. Whatever. Stop getting game over. I don't want to come back here a third time, okay? Jeez. Going forward, when I enter into a very uncertain fight, I'm just going to use defense up right away. It makes a huge difference versus these snails, but I expect the sky teddies are still too strong for me. Northwest of Shelltown, I find the fountain. A magnificent white shell with twisting layers spirals upwards, surrounded by eight smaller columns above a pool of water. Touching it restores my health. There are two human-like creatures nearby. They're not gnomish like the denizens I've talked about earlier. They are shirtless, hooded humanoids with big black eyes. Or they could be completely eyeless with big fleshy heads, shirtless bodies, and pink pants and shoes. One of them says that you can hear the sound of another world coming from a field of holes east of town. Now I encounter a Groucho, which is a disembodied pair of beady eyes with red irises, a nose, and a tuft of mustache hair. I assume this is a Groucho Marx reference. It says hello and it walks away. When the battle ends, I still earn experience. North of the castle, I find a house with five flying men, or anthropomorphic falcons. The first one I talk to says it is his destiny to help me, and he joins the party. They all say they cannot wait to serve me. The next rabe I see with his winged friend, I fourth D slip the fuck out of there. These flying men, they do not have battle stats, and they're not controllable in battle, but they do participate in battles. 
I arrive at the gate of Queen Mary's castle. There are three guards and they're each wearing orange robes and a hat that looks like a spotted mushroom. One of the guards will let me through if I solve his riddle, but he does not prompt me with the riddle. There's a red weed growing nearby and I place it in the fountain. It does indeed turn into a magic herb. Now I encounter a watcher. It looks exactly like a groucho except it's just the eyes. I bash it and it goes down. Now I encounter a four eyes. It is two pairs of eyes in a two by two formation. I crit it and it dies. Man, there's a lot of eyes around here. I'm wandering around now, not sure what to do next. I use telepathy on the fountain and an old man emerges. He functions as an ATM. This gives me an idea. Let's use the telepathy on the mushroom riddler. Before I speak with him, I spend all of my money on a magic coin, a gold ring, and an H2O pendant. I equip them all. I cast telepathy on the Riddler. The answer is two alligators, although the guard hasn't shared his riddle with me yet. Hold on. Two alligators is the answer to the riddle? That was the fight that gave me my first game over. <laughs> Quiet you. Is this a coincidence, or is Earthbound Beginnings remembering the first fight I got a game over on, only to display it again here? The guards yield to my galaxy brain, and I am invited to enter Queen Mary's Castle. Queen Mary's Castle is the largest structure I've seen in this game so far. It is an enormous palace of pink shells twisting upwards into several enchanting minarets with a single white spire in the back center stretching up much higher than the others. Inside, the rooms have emerald green walls and a reflective emerald floor. In a side room, I see more of these fountain men, those hooded, fleshy ones. Maybe they're her royal court, although they look kind of creepy. Also, you know what? This is an aside. They look like precursors to the pig mask army too, although they're much more compassionate than the pig mask army. One of these creatures says, I wish I could hear the queen sing again. Another one says, the queen shouts, I'm scared when she has nightmares and then begins to sing a bit. He then wonders what kind of trauma Queen Mary has encountered. I see a room with three presents. I am a child. I open presents, so I open them. There's a flash dark, yeah, a flash dark, a magic herb, and an antidote. And we only have room for the flash dark, which, according to its description, well, is, you know, the opposite of a flashlight. Another room is four presents. I am a child. I open presents. Antidote, bullhorn, magic herb, and the fourth is empty. Another room has six presents. I inspect them all. Fight capsule, PSI stone, Boomerang, rope, ruler, and berry tofu. I dropped the rope I found in the zoo administration office and opened the boomerang present. All the other presents opened spontaneously and are now empty. I equipped the boomerang. My offense goes from 51 to 71. Wow, that's a huge jump. Between this boomerang and my new defensive items, I'm feeling pretty formidable. I find the throne room. A long red carpet runs along the reflective green floor and takes me to Queen Mary's throne where she's sitting. She says, welcome. Here, everyone is my friend. I can have as much as I like of whatever I want. I say I want to hear her song, but she says she can't sing. She begs me to learn her magical melody, and it's only eight bars long. When I have all eight, I should return and sing it to her. And that's all she has to say. Her handler says an onyx hook can warp me to magic hand at any time, but he does not give me one. He tells me to promise him that if I need help, I will return. Boy, he's more emotionally invested in this than I am. I think he should join my party, but I'm unable to invite him. I'll leave the castle. Okay, so the one part of this area I haven't explored yet is the field of holes southeast of the castle. So I go there. They look more like wells to me. Here in this place, I encounter dad's eyes. They're the same usual disembodied eyes I'm seeing all over the place, but these ones have gray eyebrows. That's literally the only distinction. Dad's eyes was beaten. Okay, there are wells everywhere. Oh my god, there are mom's eyes too. Okay, they're like dad's eyes, but these have long orange eyelashes. 
It does a continuous attack that targets my flying man. The wells are all dead ends but one. In this well, I climb down a ladder into an icy labyrinth of black rooms with walls made of gargantuan blocks of ice. The room has two paths that open up into different rooms, and those rooms have two paths that open up into yet another room with another two paths. After trial and error, I determine how to navigate the labyrinth. There are mom's eyes and dad's eyes down here. I don't really like the feeling of my parents watching me suck at this basic labyrinth layout. Also, an Ulrich appears. It's a large, disembodied blue head with chubby cheeks, two diminutive hands, and piercing eyes. The top of its head ties off like it's a bag or a whoopee cushion. I defeat it in one hit. In one dead end, I run into a sleeping orange dragon. It is not wakeable. That may be for the best. Then I walk over to an opening in the ground, and a fish attacks! This fish monster is called, simply, Fish. It is a yellow-green fish with spiked dorsal fins and a toothy grin. In its first attack, it smashes the flying man, who has been defeated. Then it does a continuous attack, but after a defense up ability, it hardly scratches me. I defeat it. In the room behind it, I find an onyx hook. Hey, that's what the queen's handler was talking about. I press forward and find a present with a sword in it. My inventory is full, but this seems like something I should make room for. I throw out the antidote and take the sword, but Nintendo cannot equip it. A little farther down the ice maze, a man is blocking a doorway. The Forgotten Man. He's grappling with being alone. He says, I am the Forgotten Man. I'm not really here. You didn't have to notice me. Please ignore me. I speak with him again. He says, He is a man who does not exist, but I talk so kindly. He doesn't know what to do. If I miss people, I cannot live alone anymore. I speak with him a third time. He says, My conversation is always a monologue. Yep, I can see that, pal. I've been alone from the moment I was born. Dot, dot, dot. I speak with him a fourth time. Lucky, unlucky, it makes no difference to me. Sometimes even breathing becomes too much. On the fifth time, he says, Why do you insist on talking to me? Well, you're in my way and I want to get out of this icy hellhole. Are you a forgotten man too? I can answer yes or no to this. I say no. He says, That's right. That is right. Right? What the hell, game? Go ahead. Ignore me like everyone else. Another yes, no prompt. I say yes, and the forgotten man disappears from the bowels of the dream world, granting me access to the room beyond. I reappear in a cave similar to the one that transported me to Magicant, with another pink shell sitting behind me. I check the shell, and I disappear again. Well, where the hell am I now? I'm in another cave. I emerge into what looks like the real world again, complete with green grass, lush trees, and rolling hills. I encounter a barbot. It's a tall, slender robot made of silver metal with two mantis-like eyes. A robot made from a bar. Then I encounter two skunks. Haha, <laughs> they go down easy. I encounter two little saucers. Yep, I recognize you guys. Alright, you know what? Let's check the map. Okay, I am south of Marysville. Then a fugitive draws near, and so too does a rope. This rope is exactly like the noose man from Earthbound. The fugitive is an overweight, poorly dressed, hog-nosed Mr. Mime wearing a purple and white striped shirt and red slacks with a red tongue hanging out of its head. The rope used rope, and now I am bound by rope. I defeat the rope, but the fugitive kills me. Uh-oh, she is not going to be happy about this. This is the Earthbound Beginning Game Over County, where once again you got another game over! That's three! Hi again. Wasn't it just here like 20 minutes ago? Yeah? Come on, dude, what's your excuse this time? Wait, let me guess. A little unicorn stabbed ya. No, a thug and his friend jumped out of nowhere. They tied me up and beat me up. It isn't my fault. Seriously? 
Seriously. Ha! Night to YouTube, but that's not funny. I'm serious, though. I don't care. Don't let it happen again, or I swear to God. Man, she is harsh. I am back in Magicant. I restore my health at the doctor and go through the ice caves all over again. I arrive at Marysville from the south. Marysville is a town with lots of buildings and residences like Podunk. In style, it is very, very similar. I take some time to speak with the locals. Someone's heard a zombie was kidnapped in Podunk. <laughs> uh, another wonders how to get the rocks off the railroad tracks. No, 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 not get their rocks off at the railroad tracks. How to get the rocks off the railroad tracks. And they surmise that perhaps the mayor is waiting to clear it until election time. Another local hears that in Duncan's factory up north, they are building huge rockets. It's about now that I notice a railroad runs alongside the edge of town. A cool dude in glasses asks me if I've been to Sweet's Little Factory. I say no. If I say yes, he says, they make bottle rockets there. One woman says her husband is an important man at Twinkle School and he never eats lunch. A man that looks like Link's uncle from A Link to the Past says, don't take me for an ordinary man, although he is one. A cop asks me why I'm not in school. A sign outside the hospital says, Welcome to Marysville with two exclamation points. Cheap, fast, and handsome. The best doctor is old Sawbones Benny. Take advantage of specially priced treatments now. What the fuck? Inside, the doctor wants me to pay $171 for treatment, although I am not sick. When I refuse to pay, he says, Fine, die on your own. I'm not a mortician. <sighs> a young man thinks the rocks on the railroad could be blown up by rockets from Duncan's factory. A young woman says Duncan's Enterprises wants to build a strip joint in Marysville, but the local are opposed. In the department store's sports department, I see the boomerang is the priciest weapon, I mean toy, they have. Man, I must have the strongest available weapon right now. I mean item, right now. The variety goods desk sells rulers, stun guns, rope, and a rappel ring. I buy nothing, and I am shocked that she'd sell a stun gun to a kid like me. The hotel has a restaurant at the top floor. Here a server in a red dress says all restaurant owners love musicals. Will another melody be coming from this restaurant, I wonder? Too soon to tell. A boy agrees with me that hyphenated prime rib is delicious. A woman that looks like Lucy from Peanuts says she told her kid to study, then play Nintendo games. Those are the rules in her house. At the end of the lane I'm walking down is another sign. Coming this fall, Duncan's Debutantery. This must be the site of the proposed strip club. Financed, designed, and constructed by the Duncan Company Inc. I use my PSI powers to sense that whiskey and daddy problems are in the future. South of town is a long white building with a pink door. It's Twinkle School. A hall monitor wants to see my past, then lets me through. This is definitely pre 9-11 America. A boy wearing my outfit, up to and including my red hat, asks me if I played Super Mario Bros. 7. He's still playing Super Mario Bros. 3, and it's been quite a challenge for him. I estimate that Super Mario Bros. 7 could have meant Super Mario Bros. Sunshine, so I would have said yes if I had a yes-no prompt. A young girl asks me if I've seen a strange man in the lab. Also no yes-no prompt. In another classroom, one girl says she can't do a cartwheel, but another says any first grader can do a cartwheel. In a third classroom, a girl in pink says the janitor won't give her the key to the roof. Good janitor. Smart janitor. Another girl says she saw Lloyd steal explosives and is afraid of what Mr. Teacher will say. Capital M, lower R, period, space, capital T, Mr. Teacher. Another child named Susie calls herself Miss Marysville. Aren't I gorgeous? I say no. And she calls me ugly, and I remind her of a noodle noggin. Utterly emasculated, I leave the room. I ascend the stairs to a hallway with six doors. In the first room, a boy invites me to sneak out of the roof and play Game Boy. But he doesn't have a key. Another boy wants to try strawberry tofu. In the second door is another classroom. One girl quotes her dad and says, Don't take me for an ordinary man. 
It's his favorite dad joke. The third room is empty. The fourth room is also empty, but it has a black grand piano. In the hallway between rooms four and five are two boys who admit to picking on Lloyd, that weakling. Behind the fifth door is a classroom in disarray. But there are two presents. I am a child. I open presents. There is a slingshot and a plastic bat. I need neither. In the sixth room, a girl in pink sings, la la la, dandelion seeds fly up into the sky, la la la, I love music most of all. Also in this room, a boy thinks Lloyd will grow up to be a computer engineer. Another girl accuses me of speaking loudly in the library and then sneezes. As I walk out of the room, my screen blinks red. Oh, oh no. I know this blinking. Have I caught a cold? A cold is a status effect where every 8 or 10 steps you take in the overworld and every turn in battle you will take a small amount of damage, which can be fatal. I use healing A, which I've learned by now, but nothing happens. At the end of the hallway there is a staircase with a padlock on it. This must go to the roof. Okay, I return to the school's main level and explore the wing on the farther side. The first door opens to a lab. Two stations have glass flasks with blue liquid in them. The second door I found a nurse who restores my health, but I am still sick. Behind the third door is the jander. He holds a mop or a broom in front of him as he walks. Of course the roof is locked, he says. We can't have students sneaking out to play games when they should be studying. Yes, no prompt. I say, no. He says, please, please have some tea. I say, yes. Then he continues, it's not that big of a problem. My wife is a bigger problem. She doesn't get out of bed till after noon each day. She won't even pack me a lunch. Isn't that just horrible? I pander to him. Yes, he continues. Then when she does get up, she goes shopping. Luckily, I hid the credit cards from that woman. Do you think she's a terrible wife? What the fuck is this game? Uh, I say yes. Okay, his tone changes dramatically. How dare you talk to my wife like that? Scram! Okay, I have done this conversation tree incorrectly, so let's try that again. I say no, drawing the distinction that it is horrible he's not getting bag lunches, but she is not a horrible person. And the conversation continues to wander off the tracks. When she was young, she was very pretty. Come to think of it, she's not that bad after all. Would I like some tea? He offered me tea earlier so I say no. When you're old enough, you'll wish that young punks would respect you. Conversation over. I guess I should say yes to tea twice. Alright, let's try that again. This time I say yes, I want tea. You're a pretty good kid. Perhaps not a young punk. Oh, you need to go to the roof? Well, follow me, he says. I follow him to the roof. Halfway there he stops and says, my wife was the first Miss Mary in history. We get up to the padlock staircase and he unlocks it. Make sure to take in the view. It's incredible, he says. And up I go. I'm up on the roof now, and I can see the city from down below. This roof is only three stories up, but it feels like 30. I see broad stretches of grassland, buildings that look tiny in the distance, mountains at the horizon, and a cloudless, perfectly blue sky. One mountain stands twice as tall as the others and has a gray cloud emanating from it. Is it a volcano? There is a trash can here on the roof. It is twitching like the capsule at the zoo and the caskets in the graveyard. I check it. Nothing. I telepathy it. Nothing. I talk to it. Who are you? I won't come out. If I do, everyone will pick on me. Is it Lloyd? You want to be my friend? Don't tell anyone it, but I stole some explosives. I say yes. I won't tell anyone. Okay, I'm coming out now. A young boy emerges from the trash can. Red clothing, silver hair parted in the center, and wearing glasses. Hi, I'm Lloyd. I wanted to fly the bottle rockets that the Sweets Little Factory is producing. And the conversation ends. Hold on, hold on. He doesn't join the party? 
Well, what now? Maybe I have to go find him a bottle rocket. Okay, that means I've got to go to Sweet's Little Factory. Okay, before I go to Sweet's Little Factory, I visit the doctor and have him cure my cold. I pay him $171. Ouch. But hey, he's not a mortician. I travel south of town and I encounter a cougar. Now I know you're thinking, but this isn't karaoke night at the five o'clock club. The cougar is yellow and its hair is upraised on its back. It has big Cheshire cat eyes and a creepy grin. I bash it as well as a boomerang can bash. Farther south, I find the factory. It is an enormous structure of dull gray siding that forms a terraced ziggurat of steel. I enter. There are mostly rats here. They're the same rats I found in my basement, but I find a barbot here and there too. This is the largest, quote, little factory ever. It is a labyrinth of dull gray metal and gray bricks and sheet metal floors. The factory is tiered and connected by ladders. Most of the side rooms here have at least one present. I am a child, I open presents. But I'm overwhelmed by the number of presents in this place. There's no way I will ever have enough inventory space to properly loot this place. I do find a butter knife though. It's a strange enough item, so I keep it, but I cannot equip it. In a trash can in the northwest corner of the highest level, I find a bottle rocket. Okay, let's return to Lloyd. On my way back, two eagles draw near. They are large and brown and they have pecs. No, not those kind of pecs. Pecs, pecs. They're looking ready to adorn a coat of arms. Eagles become quiet after one hit. All right, I'm back at the school roof again. Lloyd accepts the bottle rocket and invites me to the school lab to make more. Lloyd joins the party. On our way back to the lab, he says we should visit Duncan's factory to check out his larger rocket. He also says that the kids here are calling him weakling, four eyes or worse. Hold on. Hold on here, I've seen a Four Eyes and they are way more repulsive than you are, Lloyd. Lloyd begins working in the lab and then there is an explosion. We've destroyed the room. One lab desk is broken in two and the other is tipped to its side. The blackboard has fallen to the floor and flasks with blue liquid are all in pieces on the floor with some of the fluid splashed up against the wall. Let's get out of here. When we go outside, I equip him with a slingshot. Oh my God. <laughs> I realize Lloyd starts at level one. Ninten is level 16. Gross. I use the onyx hook and I return to Magic Ant. I buy Lloyd a magic coin and a gold ring. I begin to level him up here, which seems like a smart idea because I can restore health for free nearby. <laughs> he dies in the first battle to a pair of magic snails, but the magic hand hospital resurrects him for free. As I path around looking for monsters, I run into a little egg on the ground in the northeast corner. Oh, that's no egg, it's a headstone. It reads, to Nintendo's great sorrow, the brave soldier flying man rests here in peace. I press F. I figured double digits is the minimum respectable level for any fellow teammate of mine. So we're gonna shoot for level 10 here. The minimum to not be a weakling, I suppose. Lloyd hits for one damage until his first smash at level eight in which he crits for 23. It kills a magic snail and he turns level nine. This battle is one for the highlight reel. As he levels, Lloyd's psychic points meter do not go up. He must not be a magic user. I return to the house with the Ocarina man. He says the ocarina is completed and a melody can flow out of it. Do I want it? Yes. He says I'm a pretty straight looking dude, laughs, and then gives me the ocarina. It plays part of a melody and then electronic blip sounds for a half second. This must be the item you use when you get all eight melodies. I store the ocarina and the butter knife with the mysterious goods keeper. I give the big bag and the Franklin badge to Lloyd. I'm thinking he's gonna need it more than I do. Let's get out of here. We return to Marysville via the Magicant ice caves. Back in Marysville again, Lloyd and I pull a stand by me and walk the train tracks north. Vehicles attack us, a mad car and a mad truck. They are white and blue, and the hippie music plays when we fight these guys. Each vehicle, quote, goes out of control and strikes us for pretty good damage. 
But we're ready to fight back after a defensive upspell to Lloyd while Lloyd guards. He's not ready for these folks yet. One boomerang hit and the mad car becomes a pile of junk. And then the mad truck meets a similar fate. We find the pile of rocks on the train tracks. We can't use our bottle rocket on it. We need the larger one, which we think we'll find at Duncan's factory. We find a path to go around the rock pile and continue north. On the way, I find a, quote, pass that someone left behind. Oh, and what the hell is Wally doing out here? Anyways, next I encounter a bear. He's a large, round fellow standing on his hind legs. He has gopher teeth and kind eyes. He smashes Lloyd for 35, but Nintendo gets a good second hit, and it's all over for him. There are skunks in this wilderness too, but they're no trouble at all. We find another factory similar to the other one south of town. Its entrance is guarded by a dog. He says this is private property, and I should show him my pass. I show him my pass. The dog says it's expired, and I've stolen it. What suspicious creatures we are, he says. Look me in the eye. Then we fight him. He's classed as a stray dog, you know, one of the earliest and easiest enemies in the game, and so he goes down easy. We enter the factory. Duncan's factory is the same tile set as the other factory and of a similar layout, but 10 times as complex. As I'm acquainting myself with the factory, a fireball charges me. This enemy is a burning ball of orange flame with Bomberman arms and legs. His eyes and mouth appear in the flames itself, and the mouth shows teeth gritted to show his intensity. He casts PK Fire Alpha, the first PK ability I think I've seen used on me in this game, beams notwithstanding. It does half of Lloyd's health. Then an old robot draws near. He's bulky, yellow, and with heavily jointed arms and legs like the Michelin Man. He has a display in his torso, or maybe those are his eyes. Above his torso, a head-like appendage appears in the shape of a rounded-off cone with an upside-down teardrop-shaped thing at the top. Ninten smashes his ass for 89, and he's destroyed. Alright, get this. Then, Dr. Distorto and a scrapper appears. The scrapper looks identical to the old Robo, except he's silver this time instead of yellow. He's missing one arm. He has a dent in his torso and a spring is popped out of a cavity on the other side. Dr. Distorto is a haggard, ghoulish-looking scientist with scraggly red hair, a white lab coat, red tie, and blue slacks. Who do I fight first? Well, I tried the doctor. The scrapper casts PSI Beam Alpha and it deals a huge but survivable amount of damage to Ninten, who would have reflected the spell if he still had the Franklin badge on him. I run into the duo again and focus the scrapper first. This time, Dr. Distorto flies into a rage twice and increases his attack by an insane amount. He gets one strong hit on Ninten before we smack some sense into him. We find a bomb. It's an item. I give it to Lloyd. He uses it on the duo when we see them a third time. Bombs are a powerful AoE damage item. Then a beam hits Lloyd. I guess the beam attack doesn't reflect from the Franklin badge? As we're navigating the factory, Nintendo reaches level 20 here. He has 114 health, 79 PP, 85 offense, 102 defense, and other stats as well. Then a scrapper smashes Lloyd for 45, and he dies. I do not have any means to resurrect him. I have to press on. In one of the rooms, I find another Franklin badge. Awesome. Oh, and then after I defeat one of the scrappers, it drops a laser beam. What's that all about? I wonder if Lloyd can equip it, but I won't be able to tell as I'm currently busy dragging his unconscious body around this factory. In the northwesternmost room, I find three rocket launchers. One still has a rocket in it. It's labeled Old Rusty Rocket, but nothing happens. Curious. My inventory has space, so it's not like my inventory is full. It must be that Lloyd has to be alive to operate this thing. And my disappointment is immense. I warp to Magicant, revive Lloyd, take the ice caves back to Marysville, make the trek back to the factory, and navigate the factory all over again. This time in Magicant, I buy an H2O pendant for Lloyd because I believe it protects against fire damage. Also during this instant, 
thoughts of visiting Magikant. I'm feeling more like this is a hub town from more modern RPGs. Earthbound never had a hub town like this. Oh yeah, and then on my way through the ice caves, I test the laser beam. It's not equipable. It's an activatable item that only Lloyd can use. It casts PSI Beam Alpha. It deals 30 to 35 damage to a single target. This is Lloyd's strongest attack by far much stronger than his standard bash. Back at the factory, I encounter a creature I haven't seen yet before, a bomber. He's a small robot in the shape of a stout missile. He's a dull yellow color with big bright eyes and a smile akin to an apple-cheeked schoolboy, like me. He's destroyed easily, and he dropped another bomb. We reach the missile room a second time. Lloyd manipulates the launcher and aims it at the rocks on the train tracks. Okay, one, two, three, fire, he shouts. Hold on, isn't it supposed to be three, two, one? The missile launches and makes an explosion sound off screen a moment later. By now I should say I've realized there's an alternative to just retracing your steps here. Okay, so the bread items you can get, you can eat them for health or you can use that same item to drop breadcrumbs. That turns your bread item into a breadcrumb item and then when you use the breadcrumb item, it teleports you back to the beginning of whatever area you're in. I use the breadcrumb to get out of here. When I return to ground zero, that is the boulders in the way of the train tracks, I can see the rocks are blown out of the way, but the railroad tracks themselves are completely undisturbed. It's a miracle, Lloyd. Near the tracks, I can see the blue fins of the rocket embedded in a boulder nearby. Let's explore past these rocks, shall we? I encounter a maniac truck. It's like the mad truck, but its cab is painted black this time instead of blue, and it becomes a pile of junk before it can do anything dirty to me. A short distance later, we find a small building at the side of the tracks. It's the train station called Union Station. We enter. The woman at the ticket counter says they don't know how far the line goes, but I need a ticket to ride. It's 16 bucks per person. I buy two tickets. And off we go! We're on the train now. It is a two-car commuter train with gray passenger cars and no typical train engine. The dullness of this train makes it feel very modern compared to a, I don't know, choo-choo train guttering black smoke. The train races full bore out of the station in southwest, down the track from whence we came, past the blown up boulders, and past Marysville. Southwest of Marysville, the tracks turn east where we charge through a pitch black tunnel and then out again into a grassy and semi-forested wilderness. We come to a stop at a much larger train station. Where are we? It's a town called Reindeer. We get off here. When we disembark the train, we're inside the train station. A woman asks if I'm going to Snowman. That's another city nearby. I say no, not yet at least. Well, I had something to ask you, she says. Well, all right, I speak with her again, and then I say yes. She says she found a hat that belongs to a girl who lives there. Please take it to her. She gives the hat to me and leaves the station. It is a pretty pink hat embroidered with the name Anna, A-N-A. I recognize that name as one of my playable characters. I leave the station's pink doors and go outside. A gentleman immediately recognizes the hat as the one that Anna lost. And another local nearby says there is a man on a mountain who hasn't had a cold in 300 years, or so the legend says. A third local, a young woman, says the same man is very generous. I wonder what mountain they're talking about. Is this the one I could see from the top of the Marysville school roof? You know, for a place with a name like Reindeer, this town has fairly temperate weather. For example, just south of the station is a field of corn. I travel south and find the downtown area of Reindeer. There's a cool looking dude peeking through a house's first story window. He says he's a student of indoor architecture. A young woman notes that the town of Spook Han might have a g g 
ghost house and I shouldn't dare to ever go there. A young man hiding in a copse of trees says his existence does not matter. His importance is so small and he may not be missed should he disappear. This is almost certainly a future member of the Stoic Club. Uh, I realize I've caught another cold, probably from speaking to someone. Crap. You know, as I continue to speak with members of this community, I realize that just under half of them have something to say about the cold and flu season in one way or another. I bet all of them have a chance to give you a cold if you speak with them. I have dropped into a town undergoing a cold and flu epidemic. A dirty young girl begs me to give her something, anything. I give her a magic herb. She gives me a flea bag, a bag full of fleas and other nasty critters. I visit the hospital and the doctor cures my cold for 60 bucks. There isn't that much more to do around here, so I return to the train station bound for Snowman. Maybe I can find this Anna I keep hearing about. I am careful not to speak with any more diseased locals on my way out. Man, there are a lot of dog houses and reindeer, almost as many as there are houses. On my way back to the train station, I encounter a bag lady. She's a heavyset middle-aged woman holding two shopping bags. She's wearing a red dress, red heels, has long curly blonde hair, astonishingly creepy eyes, and a cackling mouth. I throw the flea bag at her because I think it would be funny. She becomes itchy all over, which makes her lose her offense and defense. She regains all her senses after a few whacks from my boomerang. Just now I notice I no longer have my laser gun. I wonder if it has a certain amount of uses before it expires. Damn, I really like that thing. I pay the fare to go to Snowman. $40 in total. And off we go. Our train races across two ravines and another town, perhaps Spookan, races through another tunnel, and when we come out again, we appear in a winter wonderland. In the snowman station, a man and his daughter want to take the train to Youngtown, but are unable to for unknown reasons. I'm not sure where Youngtown is on the map. They say their mother went there a few days ago, and they haven't heard from her since. Let's hope Youngtown isn't a bar for college students. A fortune teller outside the station predicts I will return to Union Station, but isn't completely sure. Geographically speaking, the snowman station is separated by the town of Snowman by a snowy ravine. We have to cross this ravine. As we cross, we encounter a polar bear. He's tall, white, and large like the Yidit, Rabes, and regular bears we've seen earlier. Through the ravine, we find the village, encircled by yellow trees. I need to call Dad, and I find a phone. Instead of his usual spiel, he asks to speak with the person playing the game. You know, me. I say, yes. I assume Nintendo hands the phone to me at this point. Nintendo's dad appreciates my kindness to his son and introduces himself as the boy's dad to me. He wants to know my name. I input, Tyler. T-Y-L-E-R, and then confirm. He confirms the spelling, and the conversation ends. He does not save my game, so I, er, Nintendo calls dad again. When I return outside, the first NPC tells me not to catch my death of cold, then coughs on me. I, or Ninten, now has a cold. I killed this NPC. A second NPC coughs on me after telling me there is a mountain chateau nearby. It's a fucking leper colony around here. More like snowman should ever come near this place. An older woman says everyone in Youngtown has disappeared. A young boy in town says Anna hasn't been coming to school lately. After speaking with the locals, I realize that no old woman has given me a cold in this town. They must have the queen's immune system. I go to the drugstore and buy mouthwash. It costs $175. This fixes my cold. I will speak to no other NPCs in this town until further notice. I enter a house with a sign outside that says Jack. It functions as a hotel, but there's just one casually dressed woman inside it, and the building's interior is simply a house. 
This must be a bed and breakfast. It's time to visit the chateau. This is probably where Anna is located. The chateau is west of town through a forested, wintry wilderness. On my way, I am confronted by four silver wolves. They look a lot like the dogs I fought in Podunk, but their fur is all white here. One by one, they all go quiet under the crushing blows of our boomerang and slingshot. The battles on the way to the chateau run me low on psychic points, and these wolves chip at Lloyd and I's health pretty hard. So I return to the leper colony and sleep at the two-room bed and breakfast. Okay, let's try this again. We reach the chateau on our second attempt. It looks like a tiny church inside, painted white with a bell tower at the top center. Inside, it has several stained glass windows beaming colors of emerald green, yellow, and pink into the church's interior. A girl in a pink dress says, You have appeared just like in my dream. The boy in my dream looked just like you. The man nearby says his daughter, Anna, has never been a brave girl, but is kind at heart and has a secret strength. I hand her the hat. She asks if I am Ninten. Now, Ninten's dad made me distinguish the difference between Tyler and Ninten earlier, so I say, no, I am not Ninten. She says, don't get silly on me now, for I must go on a trip to find my mom. She needs her help. She's been waiting for me, Ninten. Anna's dad bids us farewell. Then she says, we'll be back to find our mom. Believe in us. Anna has joined the party. Oh, and her sprite is now wearing a pink hat. And she also starts at level one. Christ. I use the onyx hook again and return to Magicant. I find the cat who wants to give his ribbon to a lady. With Anna in my party, the cat offers it to us. Anna ties the ribbon to her hair, which permanently increases her psychic power. It's not an equipable item, just a character-specific consumable. I buy her a magic coin, gold ring, and fire pendant. She equips them all. We grind levels for Anna and Magicant until I realize it might be more efficient to grind in Duncan's factory instead. While it is not as easy to get to, the enemies give more experience and maybe we can get more bomb or laser gun drops. We grind until Anna reaches level 10. No, Mega 12. While we're grinding this out, Ninten, who is level 23 by now, crits a bomber for 111 damage. This is Ninten's first attack for triple digit damage. I end up grinding Ana to 13, and as I've been leveling her, she's been learning psychic skills hand over fist. And her maximum mana is just 10 points under Ninten's, who has 11 more levels on her. The psychic skills she's learned includes telepathy, life up beta, life up gamma, healing alpha, healing beta, shield alpha, shield beta, brain shock, hypnosis, magnet, block, which is like a silence, and some damage dealing spells, freeze alpha and freeze beta. We return to Snowman by picking up the train at Union Station to pick up a frying pan, which I correctly guess is a weapon for Anna. Her equipment set is complete. I've been hearing a few things about Spoo Can by now, that place with a mansion full of ghosts. I decide to check it out. After all, it seems kind of strange to visit Spoo Can after visiting Snowman because Spoo Can lies on the railroad between Reindeer and Snowman, but getting my third playable character is a first order of business, so I skipped over Spoo Can. Now that we're here, Spoo Can's environment is the usual grassy, mildly forest landscape palette I've grown familiar with in Podunk, Marysville, and Reindeer. The Spoo Can train station looks just like the others, but there are no NPCs here. I find the downtown area north of the station, but all of the buildings are inaccessible and hostile bears and eagles are roaming the streets. However, the hospital is accessible with a doctor as the only person present. A sign nearby says the residential area is east, so I go east. On the way to the residential area, I find the Spookan Hotel. Eerie music plays when I enter. The man behind the desk is an unusual sprite with a gray suit, gray hat, and a black tie. His rooms are extremely cheap here. Sure, why not pay $18 for a room when mouthwash is 175 What's the worst that can happen? He says, sleep tight and don't let the bed bugs bite, then laughs. When I awaken, he attacks me. 
It's a Starman. The Starman looks similar to the pink Starman Jr. I saw at the Podunk Zoo, but this one is larger and his metallic sheen is a white color this time. Although my team takes the time to cast Shield Beta and Defense Up Beta for a comfortable cushion of defensive buffs for this battle, we defeat him in two hits. With Starman no longer present, the hotel is entirely empty. We leave quietly wondering what else this town has in store for us. We cross the hills that separate downtown from the residential district and find a collection of ramblers with blue roofs and white painted sides. A girl up on the hill looking down on the residential district says, tell the postman who seeks the forwarding address that the Rosemary's have moved far away, then sings to herself. A man in the hills says this town's haunted house has a piano that plays a haunting melody. Hmm. I meet a young man that calls himself the Merry Postman. Have I heard the Rosemary's new address? Then he sings to himself. A boy clarifies what I've been hearing so far and says the owners of the ghost house were the Rosemary's. A young boy playing outside says a ghost visited his house but didn't stay too long because his bedroom is too small. A woman calls me a charming boy and that looking at me makes her feel confident. She's sure I'll bring that house under control then gives me the key to the ghost house. The man beside her, presumably her husband, says his house is full of ghosts, and that is why they live in the great outdoors now. A young boy that looks like a smaller Nintendo says he's the only clown in Spookan. Everyone else is so serious. I'm prompted to say yes or no to this, so I say yes, no, what kind of question is this? I say no, nothing happens. A woman calls me her assistant. Then she says she'll give me a hint if I pay her a thousand dollars. I say no. She says, fine, I guess you don't need my help, and disappears. Who was that? Was that a ghost? It doesn't seem like there is a department store in Spookan, so I head over to the spooky house. It's well outside of town through the hills leading northeast. Not long later, I find the ghost house, the Rosemary Manor. It is a large four-story lodge with a tan roof, green wood siding, and features an array of windows on all floors. I enter. Inside, the rooms are all black and eerie music plays. For as many windows as there are outside, none of them are letting any light in. A mouse in the first room reminds me of the spooky piano within. Finding the piano is my goal. Immediately, I encounter an armor. It is a gray suit of metal armor. It hits hard and has high defense. It takes some effort to take him down. If all the fights are gonna go like this here, the ghost house is going to be a pretty difficult dungeon. Almost immediately after the first fight, I encounter an alarm ghost. He's a ghost similar to the pink condom ghosts I've seen running around the podunk graveyard, but colored black with a blue sheen around his edges. He calls other ghosts to the fight, but they're the pink ones from earlier, and this is a lot easier fight. The ghost house is a maze of identical rooms, all black floors and walls with one door on the right and two doors on the left. Each door on the left opens up into another room with one door on the right and another two doors on the left, which continues until we dead end into an empty room that occasionally has a present box, or we arrive at a staircase that advances my children into another segment of the house. Rooms are decorated with a lonely fireplace, a sconce on the wall with two burning flames, or a table and two chairs covered in white sheets. Eventually, I find the first staircase. It descends. As we go down, a voice calls out to me, You'll never make it. He he, he he. I'm attacked by two bionic bats. They look like the bats I saw in the Podunk graveyard, but they're bright green this time. I know better than to mess with bionic bats, so I try to destroy them quickly with PSI powers. They give me little trouble and occasionally think to themselves about, quote, the circumstances. I also encounter a dust ball. It is a pile of yellow particles with white gloves and a nervous expression on its face. It bursts into flames, dealing fire damage to my children. Down, 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 we descend the stairs. After a few more rooms, I discover another staircase, also descending down. Another voice pleads to me, turn back. I find a room with a present and a piano in the corner. We are children. We open up presents. There's a life up cream in this one. But is there a boss battle in my future? I heal up and prepare for a fight. 
I check the piano. It plays all by itself. The screen flashes with psychedelic bars of light while a few musical notes play. Nintendo remembers the tune. I check my melody meter, and it has a new note. No boss battle ever comes. That's four out of eight. Man, it's been a long time since we've had a new note. When was the last one? The Podunk Zoo? Seems like ages ago. Anna's still feeling a little low level for me, so I return to the Snowman Ravine to grind more levels. To my surprise, I encounter Bigfoot. He's a hairy humanoid with an ape-like face. His physique is quite strong, and he knows Freeze Alpha. After a few bashes, he goes quiet. The hours pass, and I leave countless wolf polar bear and Bigfoot carcasses in my wake until Anna reaches level 18. Nope, make it level 20. By now, the stench of the decaying mountain of lifeless animal bodies is becoming unbearable. It's time to leave. I recall Townies talking about Youngtown, which I think is my next destination. According to my map of the countryside, Youngtown must be one of the two major destinations I haven't been to yet. The other one, called LA, that's E-L-L-A-Y, probably a pun on, you know, Los Angeles, LA, that town is beyond Youngtown. I should mention that this map is not very detailed. The large dots on the map delineate where the towns are, but there are also tiny marks on the map, a little larger than a pixel, that indicate smaller points of interest like Duncan's Factory or the Podunk Zoo. Looking at the map, I can see the town of Reindeer has one such pixel spot quite a ways outside of town to the northwest. I'm going to check this place out first. I take the train to Reindeer and get off to explore what this out-of-the-way location could be. I stop at the Reindeer department store before embarking on my expedition. Holy shit, the weapons shop sells bombs for 280 bucks, laser beans for 760, and plasma beans for 1300. The laser beam was the item that dropped from the robot at Duncan's factory, so I buy three plasma beams. If the laser beam casts beam alpha as its on-use effect, I presume the plasma beam will cast beam beta. This should boost Lloyd's damage output for quite a long while. I have to laugh at myself for forgetting to visit the reindeer department store on my first visit. Man, there are a lot of dog houses here. Okay, uh, outside of town, it is the standard grassy field with occasionally wooded areas and a river winding nearby. I head in a northwesterly direction, and here I encounter bag ladies, psycho trucks, maniac trucks, bar bots, little UFOs, bears, eagles, skunks, and fugitives who remain accompanied by an anthropomorphic noose. In a dead end, I encounter a sign that says, now entering the Mislay Triangle. That's M-I-S-L-A-Y. Watch out! I discover a pair of dentures under the sign and take it. When I check the dentures, the tooltip says, brush, floss, and see your dentist and you won't have to own a pair. Near the sign is a four-story lodge with a tan roof, wood planks, sides painted green, and several windows. It looks a lot like the Spookan ghost house. I enter. An old man and a young boy are hanging out here. The boy says he can't understand a word the old man says. I talk to the old man, who says, and I quote, hmm, hmm, meh, he, hmm, he, meh, ha, ha, hmm, he, hmm, hmm. I give him the dentures. He accepts them and wants to give me a reward. The secret to long, long life. And then he says, gargle often, gargle proud, gargle strong. And if you catch a cold, gargling will help. He offers me a mouthwash recipe he concocted himself. And the conversation ends. I check my inventory. It's filled with mouthwash. I mean, every empty inventory spot in all three of my children's inventories is now occupied by mouthwash. is holding five, Lloyd one, Anna two. Wow. The old man bids me farewell, saying, 
may you live a long life. It's only now that I realize the meaning of the reindeer citizen from earlier who said that there is an old man on a mountain nearby who hasn't had a cold in 300 years. I speak with the boy one more time before I go. He wants to sell me more mouthwash for $10 a pop. And he finishes his sales pitch with gargle, 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 splash. Now I could probably upsell $10 mouthwash to other vendors for a nice profit since the usual sticker price is 175, but these people are crazy and I leave immediately. Is that all there is to this place? What even is the Mislay Triangle? Nothing about this zone is triangular. I look around some more and yeah, that's all there is around here. I'm not entirely sure what just happened. So I return to the reindeer station and buy tickets to Union Station in the Greater Marysville area. So bizarre. As I'm traveling, I am still coming to terms with Earthbound Beginnings setting aside part of its world map for a bizarre mouthwash gag. We arrive in Union Station. There is more track east of the station going in the direction of Youngtown, but the train does not include service to Youngtown. Union Station is the end of the line. We pull another stand by me and walk along the railroad eastward. Hardly a screen later, I can see a destroyed rail bridge that was meant to cross a ravine. Certainly no trains can cross it in this state. I look for another way around and find it in the north. After crossing some wooded hills, I discover a vast desert. This place is called Yucca Desert, like the yucca plant. It is an expansive sea of yellow sand sparsely populated by the occasional brush, sun-bleached animal bones, sand dunes, and cacti. I encounter three Omega UFOs. They look like the little UFOs from earlier, but instead of a gray metal exterior, these are red. Unsure of what to expect, I go ham on these UFOs. Nintendo bashes, Lloyd fires a plasma gun, and Anna casts PSI Fire Alpha, which does light damage to all foes. The plasma beam breaks upon its first use. Ugh. All right, so that must mean that there's a percentage chance that it breaks upon use. I would go on to look it up later and it is like 12 or 12 and a half percent chance to break. These enemies were fairly easy. I have two more plasma guns at least. I encounter an ultra barbot, which is also a red variation of its gray cousin. He hits hard and he's also joined by two Omega UFOs. Next, I encounter a Nancy and an energy robot. The Nancy is an android coated in blue metal shaped in the likeness of a woman, which I can tell from its armored breasts and padded metal shoulders. Shoulders, although its face is hidden behind a mask of blue metal. The energy robot is a squat, cube-shaped robot with two tubular arms and two dwarfish legs. Gray bug eyes sit on top of the cube, and the cube's surface displays the atomic radiation danger symbol. I focus the Nancy first because I suspect the energy robot might explode upon death. The energy robot replenishes Nancy's health while I'm fighting it. Well, okay, let's try focusing her again, still weary of the explosion. The Nancy smiles a daring smile, which boosts her physical defense. If Nancy layers the effects of her smile, the damage dealt from bashing becomes impotent. This makes PSI powers or fleeing my only recourse. I persevere, and we demolish Nancy without incident. The energy robot crits Lloyd for precisely the amount of health he has left, 61, and he faints. When we defeat him, he does indeed explode, rendering Anna with single digits of health. Do I seriously have to return to Marysville to resurrect Lloyd? I think so. So I start heading back. On my way back, I'm waylaid by a Titanese, a large yellow scorpion with intensely bulbous eyes. I fear a poison attack from this guy, but it never comes. It goes back to normal after a few rounds. Hold on here, I stop in my tracks. All right, so Anna has so many PSI abilities by now, and I've been ignoring most of them. Maybe one of them is a resurrection spell. I review her power so I don't have to return to town. One called Super Healing restores Lloyd to full health at the cost of 36 psychic points, which is about one third of Anna's max psychic points. 
This is worth. Now we've got these PSI stones in our inventory. They're on use items, they grant you psychic points. They're kind of like magic butterflies you keep in your inventory and you can use them multiple times. Anna squeezes the PSI stone in her inventory three times, which restores most of her psychic points. And we're back in action. I spin on my heels and return to the desert. I encounter a star man here as well. It's the same foe I fought at the Spookan Hotel and I bash him. He's the easiest foe so far here. Not long later, I find an oasis. There's a sign nearby that reads, See the Yucca Desert, charter flights available by arrangement. In this oasis, I find a man standing by a yellow and red biplane and a gray tank. The man says he laid mines in this desert during the last war. He's removed all but one of them, so watch your step. I want to know more about this war. He asks if I want to go on a plane ride, and I say yes. He offers me three flight plans, A, B, and C. He says, save your ticket stubs because after 10, I can take the tank. I can take, I can take the tank? You look so happy about that, he says, and laughs. Maybe he saw me struggling out there in the dunes. I buy flight plan A. We board the biplane and take off. Our flight begins by circling a few lonely cacti a few times. Then we go north where we see the cliffs overlooking the ocean. Then we go east where we see a ruin of dilapidated clay walls. Then on our way back, we see impressive mesas akin to Arizona's Monument Valley in the south central area. These ticket stubs, of course, are actual inventory items that do not stack. So I need to create extra space in my inventory to accommodate all the tickets necessary for the tank promotion. Luckily, I have a lot of mouthwash to throw away. <laughs> I take flight plan B. This flight takes us west where we came. We fly over Ninten's house north of Podunk. We fly by the Podunk Zoo, Duncan's factory, and back to the Oasis. I see nothing I haven't already seen before. I take flight plan C. We fly north to the sea cliffs, then west. We pass a stone jetty that points outward into the sea. We fly by a silo, or maybe it's a tower. We fly over a lake and then fly southbound along a river, then to a train station. Our flight follows the railway westbound along the southern border of the desert, then turns northwest back to the oasis. I buy the A flight plan again as a means to get my 10th ticket, because he only gives out as many tickets as there are party members, no more and no less. What I mean is, I only need 10 tickets for the tank, but I really need 12. I turn in my tickets and the pilot grants me access to his tank. I climb in. Incredible high-energy rock and roll music plays as I travel around the desert. Random battles are turned off, but I cannot exit the tank anywhere but the oasis. I visit the suspicious cacti that the pilot circled during flight plan A. I observe that one of the cacti has a face on it. I am curious about this cacti, but I am unable to interact with it in the tank. So I return to the oasis, get out of the tank, and then travel by foot to the cacti. On my way, I encounter a gambillion, a gambolan. It is a strange, magical-looking quadrupedal mammal with a long cat's tail, four cat's paws, a long neck, sharply pointed ears, and a flared conical mouth like Birdo's. It's covered in white fur speckled with red stars. In the fight, it spits a sticky substance that binds Lloyd, but we take it down easy enough. Soon after, I encounter a rattlesnake. It is a yellow variation of the red and green snakes I've seen earlier. It has a final blow that deals 202 damage to Lloyd, and you go down. Anna casts super healing on him once again. I encounter another Nancy, but she's all alone this time. I use my plasma beam on her and it breaks. I'm down to one plasma again. Next I encounter a tarantula. It is red with two legs and three pairs of hands, each of which have white gloves. Its eyes squint menacing at me and its grim smile is in its torso. It calls for help. 
and I bash it. The tarantulas use poison needle on me, which poisons Ninten. By the end of this battle, I am in combat with three tarantulas and all of my children are poisoned, and two non-critical attacks directed to Ana cause her to faint. Ninten cannot restore her from this status, so I have to return to Marysville or Magican to restore her. But first, the cactus. I find the cactus with the face. I cast telepathy on it, and the cactus sings. The background changes to psychedelic bars of black, white, blue, and red. Nintendo remembers the tune, and I have received the fifth melody. I did not expect to find a melody here, but it is nice to have at least completed a major task in this desert before having to leave and regroup. I only have three more melodies to go. I activate the onyx hook and return to Magicant, the land of free healthcare. As usual, I take the ice caves back to Marysville and return to the desert by foot. Before I can climb back into the tank, I encounter a bionic scorpion and two normal scorpions, not titanese, normal scorpions. These look a lot more like a conventional scorpion, I figure the bionic scorpion should go down first. By the end of the fight, all of my children are poisoned, but it is quickly remedied with healing alpha, which both Ninten and Ana can cast by now. I take the tank and travel westward through Monument Valley and then towards the ruins. The tank passes through the ruins' first open area, but in the second open area, I get into a fight. A fight in the tank. It's a boss battle. It is a robot, a towering colossus of gray steel named R7037. Its sprite is drawn from a low angle, giving it the appearance that it is looking down on my children from high above. And I bash it with the tank. When R7037 attacks, it hits Nintendo for more than 200 damage, but the battle text says the attack bounces off Nintendo and the robot takes the damage. Nintendo bashes, Lloyd uses his last plasma again, and Paula casts PSI Freeze Beta. Wait, this is a mechanical enemy. Let's try Thunder Beta. When Nintendo autos, he actually fires the tank gun, which does less damage than the average Nintendo attack, but each attack from the boss is reflected back onto him as well. The battle ends with my team receiving zero damage. However, the tank is destroyed as well. I abandon the tank and advance further into the desert ruins on foot, and descend into a hole. At the bottom of this hole is a cave full of sassy monkeys. Let's talk to some of them. One of them says most monkeys down here are liars. Another says it is a girl, and I say no. A third says to walk straight. Another gives me a quick capsule for catching up to him so fast. Another says turn right, then left to find something nice. As I'm executing those turns, another monkey says they're all liars and the way is right, left, left, and right. Another says, oh, Anna, baby, hubba hubba, what a dish. Another says, don't believe that all monkeys are liars. Another asks if it looks like a monkey. I say yes, who then says he's a raccoon pretending to be a monkey. Another monkey calling himself the boss gives me directions to the exit. Another monkey tells me to cool down and asks if I'm serious all the time. I say no, and he's good to hear it. One monkey starts singing and says, this song is not yours. A penguin is down here who says he's made a really big mistake coming here. And I believe he's the only honest animal here. I descend another level and arrive in a cave, but a different kind of cave. It's the same kind of cave from all those pink shells. And you know what? There is a pink shell here. I use telepathy on it. Nintendo feels a question enter his mind. Who has lost his tail? Before I can answer, I'm back in Magic Hand. Now, there's gotta be a reason I'm back here. I visit the palace and speak with Queen Mary. She has nothing new to say, only reminding me to return to her when I have all eight melodies. I speak with Magicant's only monkey, nothing. I speak with the musician. Wait a second here. Since when did his dialogue change? He sings me a song that provides hints to all of the locations of each melody. This is his song. Listen to my song, O oh music-loving adventurer Ninten. Why do you cry, O oh Cupid doll? Canary sings so sadly. Monkey sings. Piano plays. 
Maybe there is a ghost? Desert Cactus, so alone, every night his sad, sad tone. The dragon sleeps, the note remains. Eve's last song has no refrain. On a mount named Itoi, you must climb high, young boy. See the XX stone for the last tone, then do not leave Queen Mary alone. La la lullaby, strange lullaby. Bye bye bye, goodbye. Sure is a nice song, isn't it? The hint they came after the cactus is about a dragon. Where have I seen a dragon? Well, I see him all the time. The sleeping dragon in the ice caves that connect Magicant to the real world. Time to visit him again. I find the dragon. It feels my presence and wakes. The dragon says, you must defeat me to earn my musical note. It's boss battle time. The dragon draws near. The beast's scaly skin has dull green and red stripes that run from its tail along its body and up a long neck to its head. It has a large leathery spinal sail on its back like a Demetrodon. It has long clawed feet but no arms. It has a hog-nosed snout, two white horns, dagger-like teeth, and frills where the neck meets the head. Its roar makes my children's defense decrease. I counter with party-wide defense up and shield psychic magic. Nintendo bashes, Lloyd uses the plasma beam. Anna casts offensive abilities such as beam beta, thunder beta, or freeze gamma, testing out if the dragon is especially vulnerable to any of them. Freeze Gamma, it seems, doesn't deal any damage but simply reduces an enemy's health to a critical state. Freeze Gamma finds its mark and Lloyd finishes it off with his blaster. That was easier than I expected it to be. By the way, Freeze Gamma is totally broken. When the battle ends, the dragon crooned his tune without hesitation. The screen changes to psychedelic colors of blue, red, and purple as a couple notes sound. Nintendo remembered the tune. The dragon goes back to sleep, and I have acquired the sixth melody. When I leave the ice caves, I arrive not in the south of Marysville like I expect, nor do I reappear in the monkey cave either. It is another grassy, wooded area. The yucca desert music is playing, but I'm not in the desert itself. Where am I? I check my map, and it says I am south of the desert near Youngtown. Oh, we must be close. Let's go there. I find the train tracks and follow it into town, fighting spiders and starmen along the way. After a bend in the tracks, the deciduous trees give way to fir trees, and they find the Youngtown Station. It is the true end of the line, although severed from the rest of the line by the demolished rail bridge. The man at the ticket counter says the train isn't running because the track is ruined. Then he says it's the end of the world and all I want to do is ask questions. Please stop asking so many questions or I'll start to cry. I enter Youngtown, the game's first true forest village. The north entrance is bordered by a shoddy wooden barrier. When I pass through it, the music changes. A young girl is guarding the entrance. She asks us who goes there, then pouts to herself. Then I discover another two children are crying out for their parents. Yet another young girl begs that we bring their mom and dad back. There are no parents here. A group of four young children playing in a grassy field ask me to hold them. I enter a church and there's nobody there. Elsewhere, a young boy tells me two plus three equals five and eight minus four equals four and that he studies all the time. I enter a house nearby that has a sign that says Jack on it. It's a hotel. A boy says, dad isn't here and he doesn't care about money so I can stay here for free if I like. I do. In the morning, he says he hopes I return again someday. And if I do, he may not get quite so lonely here. Next to the hotel is a store. A cool dude works behind the desk. He sells bread, life up cream, and a nonstick pan for $700 and an air gun for $1,400. Yes! I haven't had a weapon upgrade in such a long time. The air gun increases Lloyd's defense from 56 to 91. The nonstick fry pan increases Anna's offense from 20 to 28. 
This cool dude is the only adult I've seen in this town so far, and he has nothing to say about his missing peers. I call dad and continue exploring. A little girl in town says something is very strange with the Garrickson baby. Something very strange indeed. A boy playing by himself says, I like that the grown-ups aren't around. Sure I do. Then breaks out in tears. A little girl says a big ship from the sky took mom and dad away. A boy near her says he heard dad's voice coming from the mountains, but the mountains are beyond the town of LA, which is northeast of here. In one of the houses, there is a boy, girl, and a baby on a bed. The girl says mom told me this baby has mystic powers. The boy says his name is Tom Garrickson, and that introducing himself is a hobby of his. I talk to the baby, it says goo-ga. But this is the strange baby I've been hearing about, so I cast telepathy on it, and a voice appears in my head. Yes, even though my body is that of a baby, like you, I possess psychic abilities. I know the power of teleportation. Use this to return to a place you've been to. And then in parentheses, the baby taught them his power of teleportation. Awesome! I check my menu and I can see Nintendo and Anna each have a teleport ability in their ability menu. Selecting it opens a list of destinations. My home, Podunk, Marysville, Reindeer, Spookan, Snowman, and Youngtown. I pick Podunk. The party begins automatically walking while a ringing sound plays. We crash into the tree line and for a moment my children's sprites look like a slapstick Looney Tunes character that had a bomb or rifle blow up in their face. I guess we need a good amount of space as we're channeling teleportation, like a makeshift runway. However, I am able to change the direction of my team's rapidly increasing speed, or if I need to, I can spin in a circle if I'm fast enough with my controller inputs. I walk out of town for more space. In a fight with a barbot and two red UFOs, Lloyd crits on his first bash and deals 105 damage. This is the first time Lloyd has dealt damage in triple digits. Who's the weakling now? I teleport to Podunk. I sell the old weapons and teleport back to Youngtown. About now, it crosses my mind that I don't have to take the ice caves anymore after returning to Magican via the magic hook. That's pretty nice. East of Youngtown is a bridge over a river. A nearby sign says a swamp is ahead. A young boy posing as a bridge guard attempts to stop us, but produces no real resistance. There is no real reason I need to be investigating this swamp, but as some children have hinted, their parents may be on a mountain past LA, and this swamp is between Youngtown and LA. I explore the swamp. The swamp is a maze of grassy islands separated by a tangled network of impassable streams and lakes with the occasional bridge that joins two landmasses together. I keep to my left and stay to my left. Every fork in the road, I go left. Here in the swamp, I encounter many of the foes I met in the desert. Spiders, red barbots, red UFOs, red snakes, and the robotic Nancys. But I also encounter buffalo, two of them at a time. They are large, brown, hairy, humped, and have two sharp horns, and have one hoof raised like they're about to ram me. On turn one, one buffalo crits Ninten and the other crits Anna, but both survived the battle. Partway through the swamp, I find a white house with a vibrating trash can outside. I talk to the trash can. It calls itself Lloyd's father. He says, I think Nintendo's dad asked, but you told him your name? Question mark. I say yes. He says, okay, that's fine. Please look after Lloyd. He's a real weakling. This coming from a man hiding inside a trash can. Or maybe dad is a literal trash can. I'm ready to believe anything at this point. Inside the White House is a girl. It's Pippi. We meet once more, Nintendo, she says. Don't say anything, but I didn't tell my mom I came here. You must be tired. You should stay the night. Before I can consent, the lights go out and we stay the night. When we wake, we continue the journey, but I am unable to ask Pippi to join us for the adventure. Farther into the swamp, a crocodile draws near. Its attacks put Anna into some trouble, but we knock some sense into it before things get urgent. Then two aliens attack. 
They're called mooks. They are tall, green, tentacled aliens. Their skull is three conjoined bulbous spheres, each containing one eye and a single sphere also containing a wide grin. Below its skull, the rest of the body is a tangle of green tentacles, one of which is turned up and pointing like as if it were an arm appendage. A cat's brain shock, paralysis, and blind. A few turns later, all three of my teammates become paralyzed and the battle ends. It's a game over. This is the Earthbound Beginning Game Over Counter. You have four game overs. How'd you die this time? Uh, 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 uh. We didn't die this time. A bunch of aliens paralyzed us. It's different. When everybody gets paralyzed... Wow, so you got a game over without dying? That's totally creative. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Come on, dude. Uh, anyway, what do you think even happened to them after they all got paralyzed? I don't want to think about it. Maybe it would be better if they did die. They better be it. Thank you. Thank you, Game Over Kid. I got it from here. Bye-bye. The game returns me to Youngtown, but Anna and Lloyd are still ghosts. I resurrect my teammates in Magic Hand, the land of free healthcare, teleport back to Youngtown, then return to the swamp. A Kelly draws near. Kelly is a gold variation of Nancy, who is joined by an energy robot. I don't feel like fighting a new enemy alongside a robot that restores health and explodes when it dies, so we flee. I immediately get into another battle with Kelly alone. We must have ditched her companion. We bash her until she stops moving. Later on, I cast fourth dimensional slip to escape another battle, and Nintend learns a PSI ability after the fight, although he did not earn any experience during the fight. I wonder how that works. The ability he learns is Life Up Beta, an ability Anna has known forever. For the first time in a long time, I am out of psychic points and need to refer to the seemingly never-ending supply of magic herbs from the big bag. We encounter two seagulls. They are two white birds with yellow beaks, trapezoidal tail feathers, and enormous noodle-shaped white wings with blue tips that take the shape of a waveform. They're easy enough to take down. On the swamp's north side, I find a bridge with a sign. It says LA, West, Swamp, South. Oh, we're on our way to L.A. I am really looking forward to finding its hotel. I find L.A. L.A. is a normal-looking town like Marysville or Reindeer with the usual grassland environment palette. The hotel and hospital are the first buildings I see. I pay almost $500 to stay here. In the morning, I speak with the other folks at the hotel. A woman says she's heard of a game called Earthbound. She doesn't know why it's called that, but it doesn't really matter. So if you shouldn't judge a book by its cover... Don't judge a game by its title. In the hospital, one of the mushroom-headed people guarding the gates to Queen Mary's castle is here, posing as a nurse, but converses with me no differently than any other nurse. I speak with a man in blue. He insists he is a strong man and attacks me. He's a member of the BB gang. He's wearing dark blue pants, a dark blue jacket with red buttons, and a mask that completely covers his face that is also dark blue. The mask has some slack at the top that hangs forward in front of his face like he's concealing a pompadour hairdo or a Teletubby antenna. He wears red sneakers with white soles and white laces. His posture is very relaxed and cool, with one leg crossed over the other like he's leaning against a wall, and his arms are in his jacket pockets. Ninten crits him for 107, and he regains all his senses. Outside of battle, if I talk talk to him again, he fights me again. This time I don't one-shot him, and he gets a continuous attack on Lloyd. When he regains his senses again, he drops a flamethrower. A flamethrower? I checked the flamethrower. It says it toasts the enemy, but only Lloyd can use it. This must be an on-use item like the plasma beam, but deals fire damage. Simply as a means to test the flamethrower, I challenge him a third time. The flamethrower deals 88 damage, which is more fire damage than Ana's usual PSI Fire Alpha, so I suppose that the flamethrower is analogous to PSI Fire Fire Beta, although Anna does not yet have Fire Beta in her spell list. An identical gang member nearby says, If I fight with you, I will surely be a loser. This is strange because, per his own logic, not fighting me means he will be a winner. He fights me. He becomes a loser. 
I speak with a balding man with red hair clinging to the sides of his bald-ass head. He says the black clouds that hang over the mountains are making all the townspeople crazy. I speak with a middle-aged woman with spiky pink hair. She asks if the two of us are sweethearts. I say yes. She says, love and peace. Yeah! I find a third gang member. He says, you're in the way, kid. He fights me, and I clobber his ass. I speak with a man blocking the entrance to a building with a stylish purple sign above the door that says, live house. He says I broke his tank, and that was his most prized possession. Hold on, is this the desert pilot? Now I have to pay $200 for repairs. Will I make restitution right now? I say no, because I have $59 on me. He says, I am so angry. Arr! I will return to him in a minute. Another spiky-haired lady says she has a ticket to the live show, and that the store is all sold out, but she could part ways with her ticket for $1,200. I decline. She calls me a stingy kid. A little girl with red hair says she has a secret. Promise not to say that I told you? I say yes, I promise. She says the blah blah boss's real name is Teddy. Teddy Jr., the third to be exact. Okay, two things here. So BB gang stands for blah blah gang, like capital BLA dash capital BLA. There's no H in the spelling, by the way. And Teddy, that's the name of my fourth party member. Another gang member simply shouts, hey, then attacks. He utters more dirty words that decrease my fight, and I make him take back that hey. A fifth gang member says, I'm no match for Teddy. He could beat me up with his pinky. He attacks. A sixth gang member sings a different tune. He says, he has low HP, but he's gonna do his best. This gang member, he sells himself short, for he is no better or worse than any of the other blah blah dudes. A woman asks if I am a blah blah, but I am unable to confirm or deny this for her. Do I look like I'm dressed head to toe in a blue onesie that completely covers my head? Another townie says they saw a cactus with a face in the desert, then ran for the hills, screaming as loud as they could. North of downtown is the residential district. There are 20 to 25 homes here. A sign says Mount Itoi is to the east. Another sign says the lookout tower is to the west and the harbor is to the north. I find a gang member here and he says I must watch out around here, but no fight ever comes. This blah blah member is smart and will live a long life. I go to the department store and withdraw $5,000. Let's explore the shops here. The variety counter has a ticket for $350, a butter knife for $580, a rope for $600, and a survival knife for $1,200. I recall the scalper said her ticket will cost me $1,200, but I can get one here for about a quarter of that amount, so I buy the ticket here. I raise an eyebrow at the knifed weapons, but I don't buy any. Near the department store is the police station. I enter. It is a single room with buttercream walls and floor with a single law enforcement officer present. A desk and a jail cell. That's it. The cop says he has a fantastic source for weapons and that I should check back with him later. I fight the same BB gang member maybe 20 times and he doesn't drop a single flamethrower. Let's go to the music venue. I pay the tank owner $200, the apparent value of his tank, then go inside. The interior opens into a large purple room with a stage center top. There are tables dressed in white tablecloths. A woman asks to see my ticket. I check my ticket. The following language appears on the ticket. Rock and roll all night and every day at the live show. I give it to her and she lets me pass. A concert goer says I look cute and wants to buy me a drink. I say no because I am underage. She asks me if I'm afraid of the cops and goads me with a final, come on. A man asks me if I want to sing too. I say no, he says I'm shy. A girl with black hair says Teddy's parents were killed by mountain creatures and that before then he was a gentle kid. A man says don't peek in the back room or I'll quote, catch it for sure, I peek in the back room. A woman says this is her dressing room, get out, and I leave. The final NPC here is a cool dude with black hair, shades, and a red suit. He says, Anna, girl, well, I saw your name on your hat. Stranger danger. 
I return to the man who asks if I want to sing, and this time I say yes. He escorts the three of us to the stage. Then go ahead and jam, dudes! I no longer have control of my children as we spread out on the stage and sing and dance to a song. The song is okay for this standard of soundtrack, and the animation is simply my three children facing forward and moving diagonally in formation. It is clear they haven't been taking notes from the Runaway Five. After an applause, a man enters the concert hall, races to the stage, climbs up it, and speaks with Nintendo. He's another cool dude, black hair, shades, muscles bulging out of a red wife beater. He says, thank you for your nice song. By the way, did you guys beat up my friends? I say yes. He says, he'll smash us. Who's the boss? And I'll teach him a lesson. We fight. But this fight is a one-on-one -on -one fight. I think I'm having controller issues here. My left switch controller isn't working anymore. I can't select any other option than the default, a basic attack. I fuss with my switch for 10 minutes before I attempt to simply auto-attack my way through this. We deal single-digit damage to one another for three turns, then the battle ends. Turns out this fucking fight is a scripted encounter, and my hardware is working just fine. My opponent says, You are quite a guy. Your name is Nintendo? Let's call it a draw then. Um, I seek vengeance for my parents. To the mountains! I'm prompted with a yes-no to this, and I say yes. Apparently this means he can join my party, because the next thing that comes out of his mouth is, Well, I'm sure we'll make a good team. Let's get going. Then, turning to Lloyd, he says, You there, the one with the glasses. You're not so good at fighting, are you? Rest here while I borrow your goods, okay? The rest music plays, and Lloyd leaves my party, and his sprite is nowhere to be found. Teddy has joined the party in his stead. I check his stats, dreading that he's level 1. He's level 18, what a relief. Is this what it's like to have an adult in your playable party? <laughs> uh, he has no PSI points, no equipment, and begins with 134 health. He's also got all of Lloyd's inventory. So, what the hell happened to Lloyd? We have no explanation whatsoever. I take the onyx hook and return to Magic Hand. I visit the Magical Goods Keeper, who is functionally identical to my sister's storage bin, and withdraw the butter knife, the sword, bread, a sports drink, and a PSI stone. I suspect Teddy deals in these kinds of bladed weapons. I equip the butter knife, and Teddy's offense is 101. I equip the sword, Teddy's offense is 132. I return the butter knife, and also the flamethrower and plasma beam, as only Lloyd can use these items. Gosh, I hope Lloyd comes back. Why did he have to leave anyways? I buy Teddy the usual defensive items, magic coin, gold ring, and I buy him an H2O pendant as well, and replace Anna's fire pendant with an H2O pendant too, because explosion damage is fire-based and H2O pendants reduce fire damage. Then I teleport back to LA. I know Mount Itui is east, but I want to see what is north of town first. I want to find this tower and harbor that I've heard about. All of the gang members here greet me kindly now. None of them want to fight. Am I locked out of grinding more flamethrowers? North of town I find the jetty I saw on the biplane. At the end of the jetty is a man who asks me if I think he's the world's greatest fisherman. He begins telling me a fishing story, then the screen goes black and the resting music plays. When we can see again, he's still telling the story, saying, In the meantime, dawn breaks over the harbor, dot dot dot. That's it for the harbor, I guess. The tower is west of here, so I go west. I find the tower. It is tall, white, and cylindrical, like a silo. There's also a blue and white graphic partway up, but I can't tell what it's supposed to be an image of. I check the sign, which says, Ocean View. Tourists, welcome. I enter into a lobby. A man says he's seen smoke rise off the islands nearby, and wonders if anyone lives there. The woman by the elevator invites me to look through the telescopes on the upper floors. Entering the elevator is direct access to the tower's roof where two telescopes are stationed pointing north over the sea. We can see an island in the distance. 
I check one of the telescopes. The first one says the shimmering blue sea stretched toward the horizon. In the distance on the island, something sparkled. Something indeed rises up out of the island, goes out of the screen's frame, then a second later, a rocket, short and stout with a white body and red tip, lands on the roof effortlessly. You know, like a Falcon 9. Interacting with the rocket tells me my party has climbed inside. We blast off to the island. Man, Lloyd would have loved this. We land on the island. It is small, lush, and green with a few trees and surrounded by tall cliffs with no beach access. There is a small white house with a doghouse nearby. I enter. It is a laboratory. A man asks me if I've ever tasted strawberry tofu. I say yes. He asks me to buy some for him. In the other room are two identical-looking assistants, Baker and Abel. They also want strawberry tofu. I return to LA by making a thousand pixel-perfect inputs, spinning in a circle as teleport channels. Just kidding. I take the rocket back to the mainland. I buy three strawberry tofu, which costs me almost $3,000, and return. The scientist thanks me and gives me an item called Words O Love. That's Words O Apostrophe Love. One of the assistants gives me an item called Swear Words. The third gives me information, saying, Near the summit of Mount Itoi, deep in the lake, lies a fantastic robot. I think it still works. I use these items in battle, they're just cosmetic. So when you use swear words, the user says, I hate you. And when you use words, oh love, the user says, I love you. These are the technological discoveries they're working on on the island. Fascinating. All right, I guess it's time to go to Mount Itoi. I cross a bridge and travel through a river prairie and find a white house. Inside is a doctor. He has food, medicine, and a bed I can use. Every time I ask him for life up, he gives me a free life up cream and I can rest here wherever I want? Man, this is amazing. The idea that I get free health restore items and a free place to sleep right before Mount Itoi is telling me that there's some challenges ahead of me. So I'm feeling kind of, <laughs> I'm feeling kind of, uh, I'm wondering what kind of challenges I'm going to run into on the mountain here. Just past the house is a cave. Is this the entrance to the mountain? I go in. Inside is a twisting maze of narrow cave paths separated by the occasional entranceway. I am immediately ambushed by three blue starmen. Teddy crits the first one for 150. The second targets Ana with PSI Beam Gamma, which apparently is a one-hit kill ability. But Ana's Franklin badge reflects the spell and the caster dies or goes back to normal or stops moving or whatever. Blue Starman may also prepare for an attack for its turn, which is a defense boost. Next I encounter a Cerebrum. A Cerebrum is a brain in a glass jar with two cartoonish legs and five thin lightning bolts radiating out of the jar. I bet this guy uses PSI abilities. And I am correct. It casts PSI. Fire. Beta. Ouch. It casts it again. Ouch! But Teddy crits it again and it goes down. This thing can also cast PSI Defense Down Beta and PSI Beam Alpha. Over time in this dungeon, I develop a policy that a turn one PSI Shield Beta is mandatory versus these things. At the far end of the first room, I open a present. Most of us are children and we open presents. It's a katana. I check Teddy's offense. It's 142 with the sword and 154 with the katana. Awesome. Teddy is now bashing for 95 to 110 damage and critting for more than 155 now. And he crits constantly. As I navigate the cave, I find another present. Inside is an iron skillet. Anna can equip this. 
It is a heavy metal pan to, quote, rock her enemies. Her offense was 30, and now it's 50. I wonder if she'll uh, bash for greater than one point of damage now. A dead end leads me into another present. It has a Hank bat in it. As in Hank Aaron, I presume. Nintendo's current offense with the boomerang, which I've had equipped for more than half the game, is 108. With the Hank bat, it is 124. Another present yields a PSI stone. How many of these do I have now? Three? Four? I have four. Jeez Louise. And just behind it is an exit. I leave the cave complex and enter the mountain proper. Outside, there are steep brown cliffs all around me, and the walkable ground is dusty with the occasional dry shrub poking up. This is the Itoi Plateau. Out here I'm ambushed by two rock goyles. They are green quadrupedal demon-like creatures with a single white spiraling horn atop its head, purple wings, and an armored purple carapace on its back. The boys bash while Anna tries to put the other to sleep. She fails, so conventional beatings is back on the menu. After the fight, Nintendo reaches level 30. His max HP is 174, his max psychic points is 124, and he has other stats as well. I climb up a cliff by a tree stump's root that is woven together exactly like as if it were a climbing rope. Exactly. Next I'm attacked by a Megaborg. It is a samurai robot in steel armor holding a polearm across its body, but the polearm's trident end is pointed down like as if he's holding a broom. Its kabuto, or samurai helmet, has a gnarly white crescent along its top. The only attack he manages to get off is PSI Beam Alpha before I TMNT turtles and time his ass. But even these murder samurai, starmen, and mobile brains are nothing in comparison to the grizzly bear I run into next. A grizzly bear is a gray variation of the bears they've seen before. Turn one, the grizzly bear does a non-critical basic attack to Ana for 108 damage and she faints. It must have really high defense because Ninten and Teddy are doing about half the damage I'm expecting them to to it. And the bear's next attack is a continuous assault on Teddy. He absorbs 80 damage on the first blow and manages to dodge the second. He'd surely have fainted as well if he weren't so nimble. We flee this fight. Grizzly bears are the most overstatted non-boss enemy I've seen in this game, and I aim to flee or fourth dimensional slip from all grizzlies going forward. Up here is also a Titanian. It is a red, white, and blue variation of the Titanese, the yellow scorpions from Yucca Desert. Nintendo and Teddy both smash it for a sum of almost 300 damage, but it doesn't go back to normal. Next round it does. Now there's a gargoyle out here. Rock goyle, gargoyle. This one's a gargoyle. It is a yellow and red variation of the rock goyles I saw earlier. We bash it and it casts fire beta. Crap! My boys finish the job next turn. Nintendo is getting pretty low on psychic points, but I have enough PSI stones to uh, keep him afloat here. I hope I find a place to rest soon and I really don't like the idea of Anna missing all this experience. There! A house surrounded by orange trees. I go in. It's a healer with a phone! He heals my party, and Anna is back. When I grab the handle of the door between this room and the next, Teddy splits from the party, saying that he has a few phone calls he wants to make. Inside, it's just a bedroom here, but Anna is blocking the door. What's going on here? I speak with her, and she says, Ninten, please stay with me. Okay. You can answer this yes or no. I say no, because I can't let Anna go down this path at such a young age. She presses harder. No! Please stay with me, please. Then silence falls. Would you like to dance? We dance together in the healer's bedroom. It is a couple's dance. Intimate and more emotionally loaded than the ritzy showbiz dance from our performance in LA. We're always facing one another as we move as one about the room. I spin her, 
She Spins Me. It's romantic, or as romantic as it can be between two children. Anna prompts me with a question. Ninten? Do you love me? I don't know what to say. Do I love Anna? Aren't we just children? What do I know about love? All I know is fighting, throwing boomerangs, riding trains, and psychic abilities. Is she kidding me? Oh, if only I could use telepathy now, I could really know for sure. But she knows telepathy too, and is a far better psychic mage than I am. Damn it, Teddy, why did you have to leave me? What phone call could have possibly been so important as to leave me in the room here with her? I'm dying for someone, anyone, the healer, Teddy, a goddamn grizzly bear to break the tension of this moment. Then again, we have been on this adventure together. Our bond along this road has drawn us close. Maybe she has truly fallen in love with me. She knows about as much about love as I do about it. Then again, I find some kind of comfort in that. What the hell do we know about love? It is stupid of her to surprise me with a question like that, and so it is stupid of me to give her an answer. But I have to give her an answer anyways. This yes-no prompt has been waiting my answer for the last five minutes here. I give her my childish, stupid answer. I say yes. She says, Oh, Ninten, I've loved you for such a long time. Oh, shit. She's for real. Thankfully, Teddy bursts into the room and asks why we're blushing. He wants to get out of here, thank God. Suddenly, we hear explosions outside. We're under attack! It's a boss fight. It's the R7038, a blue variation of the towering robot my children battled in the ruins above the monkey cave. We deal single digit damage to it. The robot's first attack is a basic attack that hits Ninten for almost 300. Ninten faints and I can hear Anna's impassioned wail in my unconscious state. She lights him up with a PK beam gamma, the one hit kill ability, and Teddy can only bash. But before she gets the cast off, she also takes a robo fist for almost 300. Teddy attempts to flee but fails. Dodges the robot's next attack, but next round Teddy is not so lucky. He also goes down under the crushing blows of the towering robot's metal fist. Then we hear an explosion. Lloyd is here. He shows up with a tank. The tank? The one with the $200 repair bill? How the hell did he get a tank up here? Lloyd says he missed. Wait, what did he miss? Did he miss the robot? The battle is over and everything feels kind of strange. Did a shell land and hit us all? Lloyd collects our cartoonishly fried bodies and returns us to the healer. Wait, no, this isn't the healer. This is the doctor's house at the base of the mountain. Ninten and Anna are okay. Lloyd is here in the room, spitting ellipses, perhaps regretting his poor aim. Teddy is still in the bed, being attended to by the doctor. Teddy says, brute strength is not enough to beat them. I know now that peace can be brought back to us. I believe. The doctor speaks encouraging words to Lloyd, who then walks to Teddy and says, it's the weakling's turn. You stay here and wait. Lloyd rejoins the party, completely turning the tables on Teddy. Teddy spits ellipses and remains at the doctor's. I didn't actually save my game at the healer at the plateau above, and this doctor has no phone, so I decided to return to LA and call dad at the department store. While I'm here, I notice the BB gang are hostile to me again, so I grind more flamethrowers. I beat up the same gang member maybe 40 times. He drops one flamethrower. Eventually I get superstitious that the overworld NPC might only have one flamethrower to drop at a time, so I go to another gang member NPC and I fight him. I even have him cornered into a couple trees just off the boulevard so the NPC can't path away from me in the second it takes for me to speak to him after a battle ends. Hours pass, and I have six flamethrowers. I return to the base of Mount Itoi and look at my inventory. 
Nintendo has a cash card, Onyx hook, big bag, lots of life up creams, and a sports drink. Anna, Franklin badge, five PSI stones, and some sports strings. Lloyd, one Franklin badge, one plasma beam, and six flamethrowers. I navigate through the caves from the Itoi Plateau all over again, arriving at the healer's house again. While I'm traveling, I'm coming to terms with the idea that for all of the grinding I've done, and between the instant death spells, the one-shot attacks from bears, and the game-ending paralysis and petrification spells, my actual health means very little on the mountain. It's kind of, are you dead or are you alive, on a turn-by-turn -turn basis. By now, I'm running from all cerebrums. I decide they just don't give enough experience for all the AoE damage they deal. When it's time to advance up the mountain past the healer's house, I get into four battles before the healer's house is out of visual range. The last one, with two gargoyles, sprays fire beta all over my team and Ana dies. I return to the healer, but not before running from another two battles. Overworld, random battle RNG is really dragging me down. But we restore our leading lady and try that again. I continue up the mountain and encounter a lake. A lake in the middle of a mountain? Is Mount Itoi a volcano, and is this its caldera? I encounter three O-mooks, that's O-H-M-O-O-K-S, while exploring the lake. They are yellow variations of the green mooks I saw in the swamp south of LA. They cast PSI Life up, PSI Defense up, and PSI Freeze Beta. And PSI Block, PSI Darkness, and PSI Fire Beta, and PSI Brain Shock. Anna has PSI Fire Beta now, and two PSI Fire Betas, one Flamethrower, and some Cleanup Bashes take them down. I've decided that a PSI Shield Beta, which is an AoE magic defense buff, is absolutely necessary to endure their attacks, and ideally taking place on turn one before they get a PSI block on someone who can also life up. Also, these guys give really good experience. On the lake's eastern side, there is a small wooden pier with a motorboat moored to it. The motor appears to be broken, but Lloyd fires it right up. I am able to drive the boat around the lake free of random battles, but there's nothing to do in this lake except inspect a whirlpool in the center. We are immediately bucked from our boat and our bodies are pulled down to the bottom of the lake and into an open metal hatch buried in the lake bed. We awake in a factory, identical in style to the other factories we visited. Where the hell are we anyways? We take the nearby mechanical lift, which descends us several more levels beneath the mountain. There are no random battles here. I find that suspicious. A few rooms later, we're treated to enormous plated glass windows that show us we're at the bottom of the lake, and I can see a few small green fish swimming leisurely on the other side of these windows. Compared to the other labs, this lab's layout is very straightforward. After descending the lift, all I do is go left, door after door. Each door locks behind me as I pass through it. The only way out is through. In the lab's largest room, there's a ladder between two enormous plated windows. There are several more fish in these windows than the ones I saw before. I climb the ladder. And as I ascend, I can see there are cracks in the glass. A tall red robot with segmented arms and legs, a power core in its chest, and a head shaped like a UFO is waiting for me. Feeling Nintendo's presence, it comes to life. It says in all caps, My name is Eve. I have been waiting for you. My creator was George. He was taken to the end of the universe, then brought back later. I am here to protect you. That is my purpose. Do you like my robot voice? More cracks appear in the glass and the windows crash inward. Lake water blasts us off our feet and the screen goes black. I mean, blue. We wash ashore. She's following me now, that tall robot. Eve has joined the party. No in-game music plays, but you know what? Hit it. 
Holy shit, you guys. Eve is really great. She fights in battles with us. Her speed, her crit, and her attack values must be incredibly high because she deals more than a thousand damage per hit. She has infinite health, is immune to instant death skills, and does not earn experience. I think it's time to grind. As I path around the lake watching Eve beat Omooks into slime, all I have to say is it is so strange to see this tall robot follow me. It must be 30 feet tall. I spend the next, I don't even know how long, painting the cliff sizes of Mount Itoi with Mook Jelly. Eve hits for quadruple digits while my children defend. This counts as full experience, and I feel like I need this badly. As we're doing this, Anna hits level 30. 121 health, 51 offense, 109 wisdom, 124 force, speed 42, fight 14, strength 49. Why did I type all these stats out of order? Anna hitting 30 seems like a good enough benchmark, so I continue my ascent. In the upper reaches of the mountain, I encounter a new foe, Super Energy, one word with a camel-capped E. He's a yellow variation of the energy robot I fought earlier. I bet he explodes too. He's joined by a Megaborg, the easiest foe on the mountain. Eve dispatches both of them quickly, and my children defend to take half damage from the robot's explosion. Above the lake, the environment is another cliffside maze of walkable areas, very much like the plateau below, joined by caves or braided roots that serve as climbable ropes. I'm caught off guard in mid-route by two Gigaborgs. They are polished jade-colored variations of their blue cousins. We guard while Eve whoops ass. Next in line for the Eve abattoir is the Omega Borg. This one is gold-plated and joined by his jade cousin. A punch hitting for 950 assimilates him into my junkyard. Then I'm ambushed by four last starmen. They are gold variations of their pink, gray, and blue compatriots. There are four of them, and so this might get dicey for my kids here, even despite Eve's assistance. Turn one, I can confidently say that a last Starman has less than 1135 health. Then a Beam Beta, one hit kills Ninten. We survive the battle otherwise, and so Ana casts a super healing and Ninten returns to the land of the living. Last Starman give an insane amount of experience. After this encounter, I'm picking up on a game mechanic that I can't really explain. I find it interesting that when a last Starman has a PSI Beam Gamma reflected back onto him from the Franklin Badge, the Starman takes fatal damage and dies. But when an Omega Borg receives a reflected beam gamma, they always resist the mortal damage. Through a cave near the top, I find a present. We are children. We open presents. It is a sea pendant, like a body of water, C-S-E-A. When I check it, it says it will guard against all PSI attacks. I want this on Anna because she's the only child with a resurrection skill. This strategy <laughs> is validated in the next fight when an Omega Borg casts PSI Beam Gamma on her and she takes a single point of damage. I encounter a Juana, J-U-A-N-A, -A. the J is silent, we presume. It is a red, slender, female-looking robot. She looks similar to the Nancys I fought in the Yucca Desert, but Juana here has a mean-looking helmet and menacing pauldrons on her shoulders. She looks far more feminine than Eve does, but one hit knocks her out. Oh, here's another new one. Star Miner. He's a pink variation of the bomber I found in Dunbin's, I mean, Duncan's factory, and Eve destroys it before it can attack. For all I know, the Star Miner is a non-aggressive creature. I grind until Anna hits 34, whereupon she learns Life of Omega, a battle-only skill that heals the entire party to full health for a whopping 48 psychic points. The next fight, Ninten dies to a squad of last Starmen. It crosses my mind how amusing it would be for Lloyd and Anna to be on equal level as Ninten, so I continue grinding with Ninten as a ghost until all remembers are level 36. It doesn't take very long because this experience is split between two children instead of three. During this particular section of the grind, Juana's drop three PSI Power Stones. Oh, whoops, Lloyd reached level 37. Who's the weakling now, bitch? We resurrect Ninten, and with him back in the fold, we continue our climb. 
A long and narrow strip of walkable ledge, a large robot attacks. It's the R7038XX. This is the same robot we've fought before, but this one has X's in its serial number. Is he back? Is he a new upgraded version? Did someone pay his $200 repair bill? I attack. This boss seems only interested in fighting Eve, however. After a few turns, the boss strikes Eve for almost 500 damage and Eve explodes. The explosion damages the R7038XX as well, who also explodes. When this scripted boss battle is over, Eve is no longer in our party. She's lying in pieces on the side of the mountain. I check her and it says Robot Eve was demolished and moved no more. But examining the wreckage causes music to play. The screen changes to rippling bars of white, black, and I don't know what else. Nintendo remembers the tune and we have our seventh melody. With my security blanket gone, I run from all battles except for the ones featuring a single foe. Well, I guess I can take two gigaborgs. A little farther up I see a tall stone with two X's etched on it. Maybe it's a grave. I check it and music plays. Something emerges from it, but I can't tell what it is. A black gem? An eyeball? This gem spirit thing speaks, it says. Ninten, welcome. I always believed I'd find you here. Your great-grandmother Maria's love was scattered. Scattered in the form of memories. I have a melody for you. Listen and remember. I believe I have found the grave of George. My, or Nintendo's great-grandfather. And now this gem thing I believe is his spirit. The spirit plays a melody, and the screen flashes with psychedelic colors again, for the eighth and perhaps the last time. Beyond the grave is a cave, with a stone blocking its entrance. I check it, but there's no problem. I telepathy it, and nothing happens. I find it strange that I cannot progress further, but I recall that Queen Maria, my great-grandmother and magic aunt, asked me to sing the eight melodies to her when I have them all. So I use the onyx hook and return to magic aunt. I can only hope that there will be some kind of shortcut to get me back here if I need to return to the top of Mount Atoyi. Before I visit the Crystal Palace, I restore my health at the Magicant Hospital, then visit the musician in the palm tree woods outside of Magicant Town. He recites his song to me again, those clues to every melody, and I understand the hints of melodies 7 and 8 now. Eve's last song has no refrain, and on the mount named Itoi, you must climb high, young boy. See the XX stone for the last tone. Then do not leave Queen Mary alone. I leave and enter the Crystal Palace, seeking an audience with Queen Mary. I enter her emerald throne room and walk the red carpet before her golden red chair. She says, please sing to me the melodies that you have learned. The complete song plays. Yeah, that's right, that's the song. Then Queen Maria cries out something I haven't seen yet in this game. Oh, Gigu! This word is spelled G-I-E-G-U-E, which could be pronounced a variety of ways, but I'll just say Gigu. Then Maria says, I loved him. I loved him as if he were my own child. The throne room starts dimming as she continues to speak. He was wagging his tail, just like a pup. The throne room grows darker. Except when I try to sing him lullabies. The throne room goes darker. Ah! Ah! Ah, George, this is your wife Maria. 
the throne room goes darker. I'm coming to join you. My purpose is complete. Darkness completely envelops the throne room. Then the queen disappears. Ninten advances to the throne, and the children also disappear. We reappear in a desert. Maria is phasing in and out of existence in front of me. There are broken magicant shells about, mountain ridges in the background, and a blue sky. The scene is tinted blue, like as if painted in the pre-dawn light of day. Maria disappears again, and then a prompt appears. After telling the story to Ninten, with a rush of wind, Queen Mary vanished. As she disappeared, so too did Magicant. Magicant was of Mirage, a Mirage born of Maria's consciousness. The screen goes black again, and we reappear by George's grave. I check my inventory. I still have the onyx hook, but when I use it, nothing happens. I advance towards the cave entrance behind the grave. I'm waylaid by a star miner who tosses a bomb at me. So, so much for the pacifist theory. But I can see I have an all new battle selection. Sing. All children can sing in battle. When you select sing, the child sings Maria's magical lullaby. But it has no effect on the star miner, so I bash it. That stone blocking the cave entrance behind the grave is gone now, so I enter. Eerie string music plays. Or is this even music? This room is a narrow cave path. I follow it. When the path branches, I take the right and enter a room filled with test tubes. There could be hundreds of them in here. There are humans inside some of them. One of them says, oh, the darkness is so thick, can't see you very well, but could it be? Is it the little girl from Snowman? Anna, I believe it was. Brace yourself, your mom is locked in a room in the back. Do not try to rescue us now. First, the mothership must be destroyed. I speak with another test tube. I was kidnapped by the mothership, please help me. We seem to have found the kidnapped parents. I leave the room and try the left fork. I enter into another room that features a large hole in the ground. Something is emerging from it. It's the mothership. The bridge appears first like an airport's control tower, then a big glassy frame emerges. There's something inside and it attacks. We are in battle with an alien named Gigu. It is a tall, thin, white humanoid with long white and gray ears, a tail, and a rat-like snout. Is this the inspiration from Mewtwo? Gigu is suspended in a pod filled with fluid as indicated by two chains of bubbles pouring out of the sides of its head. The pod is oval-shaped and has a large network of gray pipes covering its sides, plus a pair of wings or rocket boosters also covered in red pipes. It says, Ninten, I am grateful to your family. Then it casts an ability. Its form is inexplicable to my children. My party takes serious damage. Thanks to his high speed value, Gigu sneaks this ability in before Nintendo's AoE physical shield and Ana's AoE psychic shield. Lloyd lays on the flamethrower, which promptly breaks. It's fine. I have more in my inventory. The following turn, Gigu says, your great grandparents, George and Maria raised me. Then he attacks again unleashing the same incomprehensible attack that only pain can understand. Each turn, he tells more of his story. Turn three, he says, but George stole vital information from our plane, or planet, this might be a typo on my part, that can be used to betray my people. He attacks again. Ninten and Anna are healing desperately and Lloyd sings. It has an effect. Part of the lullaby plays, but just a few notes and a striking sound can be heard, like as if it were an error. No damage or reaction is demonstrated. Turn four, and now one of his descendants is obstructing our plans and must be stopped. Ninten, I am talking about you. The form of Gigu's attack was inexplicable. 
Singing has the same effect. That is, no effect. Turn 5, I need to cast PSI Life Up Gamma to myself and defend. Gigu says, Go home now. Perish with the rest of the ugly earth people. Ninten takes 46 damage to the inexplicable attack. He has 45, and Ninten faints. Ana casts Life Up Pi on herself and Lloyd. Because I'm going to need a buffer of health in order to allocate one turn from Ana to restore Ninten, and Lloyd sings again another futile gesture. Foolish one, you cannot do a thing with your meager powers. Powers worthy of a lowly insect. Again, Anna and Lloyd endure an inexplicable attack. Okay, Life Up Pi wasn't enough. Life Up Gamma is up next. Ninten, you alone. I may save you. Just you alone. Board our mothership with me. Gigu issues another incomprehensible attack. Turn 8, Anna gets a super healing off and Ninten is back in the action and Lloyd sings. The alien continues, Then fall into a long sleep with your friends and the other ugly earth people. Only on this turn, turn 8, do we get a reaction from Gigu about our singing. Stop singing, he says. Turn 9, Ninten sings, Anna casts life up pie, Lloyd sings. When he hears the sing a second time, Gigu says, stop singing. When he hears it a third time, stop, stop that song. Turn 10, everyone's at full health, so I think we have enough room to do three sings in one turn. On the fourth, he says, stop it, stop that song. On the fifth, you puny little earth bugs, shut up and stop singing. On the sixth, the song, dot, dot, dot. Turn 11, we sing. He says, stop it, life up pie, and then we sing again. On the eighth instance of our sing, Gigu can only spit exclamation points. Turn 11, everyone's about 80% health, so let's try another three sings. On the ninth, Gigu says, stop, please, please stop. On the 10th, he spits even more exclamation points. And on the 11th, the alien blinks and seizes. He says, how can I be defeated by a song like that? I will sometime. Ninten, we shall meet again. And Gigu flees the battle. The mothership descends down the pit again. The cave crackles with flashes of light. A rumbling sound begins and grows louder. No, it's not short-circuiting. The mothership's boosters are firing. The ship re-emerges from the pit and accelerates skyward. At last, we get the best visual of the ship's complete structure, although there is plenty of ship that stretches beyond the edges of my screen. The mothership blasts off away from Mount Totoi, abandoning its test tubes of adults. We're at the game's ending sequences now. They were treated to a series of scenes that last eight or 10 seconds before they clip on to the next one. So hold on tight because these scenes go by very fast. Here we go. By grandpa's grave, the adults emerge from their test tubes and are free to return to their loved ones. Anna is reunited with her mom. Now that we see Anna's mom, we can tell that she has long blonde hair and also wears a pink dress. In LA, Teddy has made a complete recovery and performs daily at the live show club. We see him on stage holding the mic stand in a lunging power pose as he performs for Ninten, Lloyd, and Anna. He lunges stage left and right, and then our final image of Teddy is him leaping straight into the air in a dramatic spread eagle splits jump like as if he's David Lee Roth. In Youngtown, Ninten, Anna, and Lloyd help the kidnapped grown-ups reunite with their lonely children. The Youngtown youth are ecstatic and rapidly path around the screen like enthusiastic puppy dogs. In Snowman, Anna returns home. 
She says to Lloyd and I, I promise I won't forget you, so I will not say goodbye, just till we meet again. In Marysville, Lloyd returns to a hero's welcome at Twinkle Elementary School. His fellow schoolmates cheer and toss him into the air in celebration. In Podunk, Ninten returns home. Mom, my sisters Mimi and Minnie, and the family dog are outside waiting for me. Mom says, Son, your sisters and I are so happy to see you back in one piece. How unbelievable that you're not hungry. Back in Snowman, Anna receives a letter from Ninten. A thought bubble sprouts from Anna's head displaying a black and white picture of Ninten's sprite chilling by some trees. A letter from Ninten, she says. I miss him so much. I hope we can get together again soon. In the final scene, we're in Ninten's room. Our unassuming, all-American, apple-cheeked, baseball cap-wearing 12-year-old protagonist is resting in his bed. His red cap is lying on the floor like as if he tossed it there in exhaustion. Ninten speaks, which, if you don't count Yes No prompts and singing the lullaby, this is his one and only line of dialogue. He says, Well, now that the Earth's crisis is over, I think I'll just lay down for a moment and... <laughs> The lights go out, and Ninten enjoys some well-earned rest. As he sleeps, characters from Earthbound Beginnings walk into the screen but below the bounds of the bedroom, pause in the center, and bow like at the end of a stage production. Well, they would bow if their sprites could bow, but they just look forward at you for a moment before leaving stage left. First, it's Pippi, then Mimi or Minnie, but it's just one of the sisters. Hmm. Then a healer and two canaries from Canary Village. Then the janitor from Twinkle Elementary School, still pushing his mop bucket. Then four children. They could be the Twinkle Elementary School kids or the abandoned children of Youngtown. Podunk's mayor and his assistant stroll by. A single police officer follows. Then comes three NPCs I don't immediately recognize, except that one's the young blonde man that you see everywhere in Earthbound. The second one is Lucy from Peanuts, and the third guy is the one that looks like Link's uncle from A Link to the Past. Whoever you are, thanks for coming, guys. The cool greaser dude, a mean-looking man with his arms crossed, and a wild-haired redhead also say farewell. Then bows a doctor, a nurse, and a second doctor. Then Anna, without her hat, or I think that's Anna. Is that Anna? Then the Yucca Desert pilot. Then three monkeys and a penguin. Two Magicant gnomes. A mushroom man and a fountain man. Then the Magicant musician. A flock of flying men. Then comes Queen Maria in her pink royal gown. Then Teddy, Anna, Ninten, who is also still asleep in this same shot, and Lloyd appear. The screen goes black, and the credits play. Director, Shigesato Itoi. Game designers, Shigesato Itoi and Miyuki Kure, and music producers Akio Omori and Ritsuo Kamimura, and so on. And at the end of the credits, I get a personal credit. Player Tyler, wait a second. Tyler, T-Y-E-L-E-R? T-Y-E-L-E-R? Did I seriously spell my name wrong or is Earthbound Beginnings fucking with me? I bet I spelled it wrong. Oh my God. The game's final shot is a sequel teaser. It is a pixel art image of Nintendo's dad speaking into a payphone. He is a large man in a khaki trench coat with matching slacks, leather shoes, and a wide-brimmed hat. He says, I know that boy is home. Come on, son, and answer the phone. Something new has come up, and dot dot dot. His back is facing me in the shot, which makes this whole thing look very suspicious. I kind of wonder if it's even him. And that's it. Dot dot dot. 
whatever buttons you press, the game holds on this frame, like until you just turn off or reset. So this might be it, but I've got some questions. What was the poltergeist supposed to be after all? Am I supposed to believe that Gigu's alien forces are so powerful they can transform inanimate objects into hostile entities? Why did the inanimate objects attack my family? Was this to defeat Nintend before he began his journey? Killing the adventurer in the crib, so to speak? How did a canary, a monkey, a haunted piano, and a cactus come to learn part of the magic melody? The rest, I can believe. My sister's doll could have been an heirloom passed down from Maria, and I accept the dragon knowing part of the melody too because he's a resident of Maria's alternate reality, and I accept that George has known the melody all along and may have included it in Eve's programming too. We hear a lot about Duncan, the factory owner and future strip club owner, but we never meet him. Why? So what was Lloyd up to during his time alone in LA? Maybe he helped fix the tank, and as a consequence of that, developed the technical know-how to repair the motorboat on his own. I think that checks out. Why did Gigu's race kidnap George and Maria in the first place? We don't see any other members of Gigu's race. Maybe it was just him that kidnapped the couple. But we know Maria loved Gigu like a baby, or something like that. Can baby aliens pilot motherships and kidnap humans? How did an alien abducted woman come to be a mother-like figure to an alien? Was Gigu seduced by motherly love? Was Gigu an orphan? Or does motherly love not exist among Gigu's race? Did George develop a fatherly bond to it too? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. And used Gigu's vulnerability for Maria's love to steal alien secrets. But seriously, why does Gigu hate Maria's lullaby? Maria seems to have loved Gigu, so it can't be from ill will. Is it because it symbolizes the vulnerability which George may have exploited to steal secrets? Is Gigu's race repulsed by motherly love, or just lullabies, or just that lullaby? Does the lullaby stir Gigu's compassion for humans, interfering with his ability to execute his master plan? Is the lullaby itself magical or loaded with psychic power? Can Maria transmit psychic power through her lullaby? If so, and if the lullaby is harmful to Gigu, it can't have been on purpose. Why does Gigu turn heel in the middle of the final battle and invite Nintendo to join him on the mothership? Why did Gigu kidnap adults? Typical American UFO folklore suggests kidnapped humans are for studying. What did Gigu and his friends hope to learn? Where exactly did they go when they kidnapped them? That happened 80 years ago, but as far as we know in the present time, Gigu only kidnapped adults from Youngtown, the mother from the couple in the snowman train station, and Anna's mother. Maybe the Youngtown parents were low-hanging fruit because they're so close to Mount Itoi. Or maybe he's studying the genealogy of psychic power inheritance. After all, the parents of the psychic baby in Youngtown were kidnapped, and so too was the mother of Anna, the psychic kid from Snowman. So why didn't Gigu kidnap Ninten's mom? Maybe he attempted to, which we attributed to the poltergeist attack. How did Dad know the poltergeist attack took place while he was away from home? Does this mean that the other household in Podunk that experienced a poltergeist also had a psychic family member in it? When the aliens returned to George, why didn't he tell anybody about it? Why was George returned but not Maria? Wouldn't friends and family be wondering what happened to her? Did she disappear into Magicant during or after her kidnapping? Did the aliens facilitate the creation of Magicant? How long did George live after he was returned? How much time did he spend living a normal life before he began his odd study on Mount Itoi? So what did George steal that could be used to betray Gigu's race? Was it the technology to build Eve? Did George build Eve on Mount Itoi? If so, why did he build it so close to Gigu's mothership? Perhaps the mothership made Mount Itoi its hiding place after George died. How did George die anyways? According to Eve, her purpose was to protect Ninten, but I have trouble believing George created Eve to protect a descendant he would never meet. 
Unless George was psychic. If this is true, this must mean George predicted that Maria would need an intent to gather her melody fragments as a means to release her from Magicant and reunite with her in death. Why is Maria's lullaby the key to releasing Maria from Magicant? So Magicant was a mirage born of Maria's consciousness. How? We know she is its creator, but was she really its ruler or its prisoner? A prisoner of silk and gold? Has Maria ever thought about taking the ice caves out of magic hand? What would happen to her if she did? Some of the coded language in George's diary said, who's lost its tail? Well, who lost its tail? It wasn't Gigu. Gigu still had his tail. We know Nintendo needed George's diary to learn the password to enter magic hand. Did George organize events such that the diary would be stored in Nintendo's mom's basement? If so, how did he ensure that that would happen? Is anyone alive working on behalf of George from the grave? Which of Nintendo's parents is related to George and Maria anyhow? Maybe dad. According to the post-credits teaser, he has important information that Nintendo needs to know. What does he know? What does he know? What does he know? Thank you for listening, everybody. This was an episode of Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where my friend and I discuss the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. Right now, we're knee-deep in a blind playthrough of Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, but we also have a couple one-off episodes that you might find interesting. You can find Hero with a Thousand Potions wherever you get your podcast fix. Special thanks to my niece and nephews who each played Game Over Kid, Prologue Kid, and the Nintendo voice actor. My name is Tyler, and I'm interested in hearing your feedback about this travelogue episode. Do you have an RPG to recommend for another travelogue episode? I'm interested in doing more of these in addition to our regular content. Leave a comment or email hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's one zero 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 potions. We are also on YouTube as the channel Gunblade Guys on Discord with a link you can find in the podcast description on our RSS feed and on Twitter via the handle hero with one zero 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 pot. Thank you and gargle often, gargle proud. Gargle strong.